Uh, last time when I was breaking down the Sahuagin stat block, I mentioned that these guys would be great for like sea encounters and you know boarding parties and raiders and stuff like that, uh, coming off of islands and so on. When you guys do aquatic themed parts of a campaign, because I mean I'm, I'm not sure you guys have done entire campaigns that are aquatic themed, but like for the parts that are, what is your go-to monster and why? Well, I mean, you can't go wrong with a Kraken. I'm always going to say a it's Kraken fair. for this. Yeah. I just think because it's released the Kraken, they're iconic. They're scary as fuck, but they're hyper intelligent to the point where where warlocks will actually use them as as patrons. patrons yeah, yeah. They, you don't get they'll much more. They'll school your wizard. Yeah, I mean, yeah. short of the Leviathan and I don't know a dragon turtle, there's not a whole lot that's out there that's aquatic that's that big and badass. And now thanks to Theros, we've got even more. Yeah. You actually mentioned it. I mean, my 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 base idea, that whenever I'm having a heavily aquatic adventure, Cthulhu's in there somewhere, right? And that's just because Cthulhu sits in the deep and rests and waits and abides his time and fosters madness in the world to make ready it for his arrival. For when he comes. Man, are we going to do a whole lot of like squid anime jokes? This- I mean, probably. Well... It's a Mimic, the roundtable Dungeons & Dragons discussion podcast, where you never know what you're going to get. Welcome to another episode in our conversation on mob mentalities, where we look at some of the water-breathing humanoids out there that can make up the enemy armies in Dungeons & Dragons. I'm Adam, and with me today is Dan, and this this episode is called Sahuigan Armies, Other Otter Water Fodder. Nice. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's the same rhyming scheme as the previous episode. Yeah, I'm I'm actually kind of upset. Uh, I I know you have another paragraph to read before we could really get into the yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the freestyle stuff, but um, we almost got into a thing today, and like you and I on the Discord. Oh, as we were rhyming ocean, ocean, words? Yeah. yeah, and then fucking Megan just like nuked us or whoever it was. Yeah, so so fuck you, Megan. <laughs> You're living dangerously, aren't you? I, I I was so excited. I'm like. Finally, something I could do. I could do rhyming conventions. I could do that. Yeah, we were going but, off about commotions and lotions. And, and promotions. And notions. Yeah. And, yeah. But, oh well. Anyways, continue. Back to the ocean. We've reached out to our army of friends and allies to help us break down what a Sahuagin army looks like in 5th edition. And we've covered the stats and details last episode about the basic Sahuagin, Sahuagin Coal Smasher, Sahuagin Champion, the Hatchling Swarm, and of course the Warlock of Ukatoa. Ukatoa. And the four kinds of shark stat blocks in 5th edition. We also discussed sea elves last time. And this time we're going to start off with the other enemies of the Sahuagin, the Tritons. But before we get into any of that, if you didn't listen to the first episode, we're going to say it again now. This is an impossible pronunciation to get right because it's a made-up garbage word. Yeah. Right? Now, there are a couple of official ways of saying it according to sage advice or uh, pronunciation guides you find online. However, when you are listening to other podcasts or watching YouTube channels or or even playing at, at a local comic book store or, or games gaming store, you're going to hear everything from Sahawagan to Sawajin, I think, was one. like. Okay, I know you're going to say, like, you're going to hear all these things and, you know, they're all going to be right because a bullshit fantasy word. No, they're not all right. Tyler, Sawajin is wrong. <laughs> from last episode well right i'm 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 planting a flat i'm gonna die on this hill sure can <laughs> come on man all right there's so, an h so not a w anyway you're gonna hear a few different pronunciations i'm sure that dan is gonna flop back and forth seven or eight times like you did last episode uh, no i'm i'm completely consistent with all this shit right okay so um 
Anyway, however you want to pronounce it is right, but please stay consistent at your table. And remember that um, that there is no real wrong way to have fun, as long yeah, as everyone's I having agree. fun together. So uh, we talked a little bit more about it and the idea of being consistent in the previous episodes at the beginning. So go over there and give that a little bit of a listen to if you want. But uh, we're just going to truck along when you hear the different pronunciations. This is why. Yeah. So last week we talked about sea elves to give us context about um, about Sahuagin because there's precious little out there. There's there's very little, and like you see with uh, a lot of the sea elf like lore stuff that they do mention that they don't like Sahuagin. I'm already messing it up. Yeah, but uh, you don't get any like direct like focused hatred. Um, really fleshed out like you do with, you know, uh, uh, like orcs and elves. Yeah. Right. I, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. So it, it's just weird. Yeah. We got kobolds versus gnomes and you'd think that sea elves versus Sahuagin would be a thing. And it technically is. And they kind of wave a flipper at it. Yep. And then they never really mention it again anywhere. There's not even any real stat block for sea elves. You get the player's stat block. And then they say, other than that, use the merfolk stat block. But give them legs. They don't even, do they say give them legs? No, they don't. Right? Like, there's there's nothing there. You have to, in theory, give them fey ancestry, and that's it. That's well, you, the you big just, difference. You just make them go see the witch in the woods, and they'll trade their voice for legs. That's it. Yep. That was a Little Mermaid reference. Well, speaking of Little Mermaid, let's talk about Tritons. Okay. So, see what I did there? Yeah, I did, yeah. A, yeah. Yeah. I've set you up. Thank You're you. Welcome. Jesus. So, <laughs> now, there are... He's walking on the water. He's not under it. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna cover this real quick because we bitched in previous episodes and then they've since updated it. Tritons do now get dark vision. They didn't in previous. Yeah, Dan's giving me the thumbs up. I gave the thumbs up and then went audio medium. Dan. <laughs> anyway, <God. laughs> um, if you have a book that lists anything about Triton and it does not have the dark vision listed as part of the stat block or whatnot, there's there's now new updated printings of it. If you pick up Theros. It's going to be in there. I wish they would do that for the Dragonborn, but yeah, yeah. I'm okay with it. I'm comfortable Really? With you're it. okay with Dragonborn not having Dark Vision? We're going to do a Dragonborn episode sometime in the next half year, and I have my rant already printed out. Okay. I'm ready to go on cool. that. Yeah, sure. We'll leave it then. So, did you know that there are two different kinds of Tritons in 5th edition? Like, just the base stock creature? Underwater creature that you fight, the base stock creature, and Brad, because he tries tons. No. The standard variety lives in the pages of Volo's Guide to Monsters as a playable race. It has no official monster or NPC stat block anywhere that I could find, as well as no stat block adjustment in the DMG, which surprised me. Yeah. Despite their undersea flavor, the standard Triton gets nothing other than the NPC stat block rules as written. That means a Triton merchant doesn't get swim speed, uh, the amphibious trait, dark vision, or any of that. That's weird. That's an oversight in my head. I Yeah, I would agree. We see that a lot with this aquatic adventuring, is that it's all an afterthought. I mean, some of it makes sense. One of the beauties of game design, and with you and I in like our discussions about actual game design, we've kind of noticed this. Um, there is some laziness when it comes to game design, and a lot of that is apparent when you start thinking three-dimensionally. Yes, but it's not just a three-dimension, though. They don't bother really with the aquatic side of things. Instead of the next campaign book that comes out, which I believe is, at this point, Ravenloft. Yeah. I want a campaign setting underwater. Flesh all this shit out. Put all of it in the same book so that we don't have to flip through the yeah. six different books 
to put it all together and get consistent with how merfolk, sea elves, tritons, sahuigan, uh, marrow, kuatoa, and all of the other aquatic things all interact with each other and then give us more aquatic monsters because we're kind of light on those. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. At least give us a, an excuse to delve in the water for an extended period of time as PCs. Like Ghosts of Saltmarsh gives you sprinklings. Yeah, it's mostly Spritzes. splashing around the surface or walking along a beach. Or or you're in a boat. You got your flippy floppies and now you're fighting a kraken. Like, that's it, right? Like, but... I fucked a mermaid. The other kind of triton is found in the Mystic Odysseys of Theros book. I'm uncomfortable. Good. This one only has surface level differences, pun intended. In instead of the Fuck blue, you. <laughs> instead of the blue skin, green haired version from Volos, we get an alien looking creature that has been redesigned to look like something birthed from the Great Barrier Reef. Its description gets a full overhaul and is, in my opinion, way more evocative and interesting. It's not stated outright anywhere in Theros, but it's implied that these Tritons come from the deep, have mastered magic and combat, and are more aligned with the neutrality of nature's whim than with the lawful good underwater knights of the Forgotten Realms. And of course, because it's Theros, they'll worship different gods. Theros has that very Greek feel to it, which is where a lot of the base inspiration for Triton, including their name, comes from. Yeah. So, yeah, all of that tracks. But I've I've bloviated for hours about how much I fucking love Theros. So Who's V8ed? Other than that, the... Two web-fingered variants are fairly similar in lore, but that's mostly because no one has really bothered to breathe much life into them, let alone compare or contrast them. So here's what we know for certain about the Forgotten Realms version. You can take what you can and apply it to the uh, Theros version, but Theros does not have an elemental plane of water, and you'll find out why that's problematic as far as lore goes Mm -hmm. in just a moment. So we do know that they're known for being clever water-based bipeds. Yep. They seem to have come from the material plane centuries ago as wardens against the growing elemental evil from their home, which is the elemental plane of water. After eons of war there, the evils fled into the depths of the plane and became suspiciously quiet. It appears that most of the Triton's enemies fled to the material plane, including Kraken and Sahuagin. Okay. And remember that this only happened a few centuries ago, and Tritons can live to be 200 years old. This is recent history to them. This is like World War II to us. Okay. Those that followed them here, to the Forgotten Realms, were volunteers with a sense of duty and a skill with weapons and magic. They spread across the deeps of the world and keep watch over deep trenches, dark underwater caves, undersea portals, and anywhere else that their enemies might hide. And make no mistake, their enemies are hiding from them. Yes. As the centuries passed, Tritons reached out to other races for trade and alliances, but they are so rare and remote that even merfolk and sea elves rarely interact with them. Because of their isolation and their unfamiliarity with the material plane, they can come off as arrogant caretakers of the sea. They expect respect due to their exploits and probably freaking deserve it. They see themselves as mentors as well as caretakers, and they act like it, much to the chagrin of others. But to be fair, they've earned the right to some inflated confidence. After all, these guys are successful victors that largely brought peace and prosperity to their own realm. As for the surface, and its kingdoms, wars, and local customs, Tritons have little use for it. They see it as quaint and meaningless compared to their struggle against true, pure evil. They are champions, warriors, and veterans of a noble race, and everyone else should remember that. Honestly, it kind of feels like the way Alfred Pennyworth treats Bruce Wayne. Like when when Bruce Wayne gets goes off on his like super dark little bends as Batman and everything, and then like uh 
like tries to like stand up to Alfred as Alfred tries to breathe a little bit more humanity in him. Alfred has to remind him, no, 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 I'm not just a butler, right? I, there's one person you should be afraid of, Bruce, and it is me. I, it, it, no one could take you down like I could, but I don't because I love you and you're my adopted son and blah, 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 family. But like, it, that's kind of what it feels like, right? Like they will stand back. I want you to have that on a bumper sticker. Blah, 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 family. Yeah. <laughs> when people have their little stick figures. That's mine. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like you, they stand back. They, um, just carry this air of experience with them, right? Where you know with the utmost surety that whatever they claim they did, they did. There's no exaggeration. They said that they beheaded 10,000 Kraken in the Great Kraken War of a millennia ago. They will produce skulls to prove it, right? And these are like tokens and trophies that they... uh Put in places of prominence in their halls, but don't necessarily brag about, right? Like, they're not showcasing them, but you're they're making sure they're there and they're visible, right? Like, that, it's that level of um, not arrogance, just confidence to them. Yeah, they earned it. And yeah. they, they really freaking did. I would honestly look at these guys as being almost lawful stupid. Really? You'd go that far? Yeah, because despite their annoying attitude and lack of manners, they truly are forces of good. They'll readily charge into battle, sacrificing themselves for the good of others and protecting everyone that they can. Hmm. Their lack of experience on this plane, combined with their lawful good outlook in the world, makes them lawful stupid sometimes, and they are easily manipulated or deceived. This isn't idiocy, though. It's inexperience with other races and an innocence born of isolation. So, lawful stupid in quotation marks, it's not true stupidity, it's just a bravado that they they've they've got their code and it's exploitable yes yeah if they have a big flaw it's that they're completely unprepared to deal with the surface world they get frustrated with the ins and outs of local customs and often dismiss confusing interactions as weakness cowardice or barbarism this might be because they're used to working as a cohesive unit with like-minded individuals or it might just be because they're already on edge due to the confusing inability to move in three dimensions above the surface (laughs) <laughs> that's right out of the out of yeah, the yeah, floor. Sure, so sure, yeah. Um, but that's all we get about Tritons, except for their personality quirks and a little table and a list of names and bolos. That's it. Again, so undersupported compared to things like orcs and gnolls and hags. Mm-hmm. The closest thing we see for stats is the list of traits the players get. Their ability score increases uh, are one in strength, constitution, and charisma, which is bizarre. I believe they're uh, by definition charisma casters. Okay, like they're mostly sorcerers then. I would, I would say or so. Bards, bards seem too chaotic for them. Sorcerers, sure. I mean, there's the idea of a uh, of a little bit of arcana knowledge as well. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you could make a. They're all warlocks. Well, I was going to say you could make a case for a wizard. Yeah. We also know that they reach maturity at 15 years old, so that they are active warriors for about 185 years. Yeah, yeah. They're usually when you see them. A creature that reaches maturity at like 15, like orcs, like half orcs do. That's why I think they're around there, 15, 16. Yeah, they have a shorter lifespan. They have a shorter lifespan. No, these guys are just, they're there and they're there for a while. Yep. Cool. They're medium creatures, but they're five feet tall. They got a walking and swim speed of 30 feet. Okay. Again, we've got these creatures. It's, I'm always surprised at how short everything is in D&D. Ah. Uh, they really do save the larger um, medium creatures for either enemies or dragonborn and goliaths and the big imposing well yeah and and like then they'll slap 
powerful build on them because they really wanted to make them large, but they're not gonna, so you don't have to justify fitting in that uh, dungeon corridor. But, like, I, I think it's more of a thing of extremes. Like, our, our, our five foot eight player characters are what? Tieflings, humans, and half elves? Yeah, but everything that. else is either eight inches smaller or eight inches bigger. Oh, Dan, that's not eight inches, but. <sighs> Anyway, they can tape says it is. <laughs> they can breathe air and water, and they can inherently control some magics that are based on the ocean. Oh shit, that's centimeters. As they progress in levels, they gain access to fog, a cloud, gust of wind, and wall of water. Although they can only cast each once per day if they get that level right. So, wall of water is so important that they actually include the spell description with the um, section in Volos. Yeah, that's fair. Does wall of water exist in? Um, while the water is just really fun to say. Um, uh, does Terry it... is twitching. It's wall of water. Water. Water bottle. Um, <laughs> does does it exist in Player's Handbook? Like, is that a core spell? No. <clears throat> no, but I believe it's in Xanathar's. So, the other thing is that they can communicate simple ideas to any beast that can breathe water, but that's a one-way street. You can't understand guppies. Sure. They have resistance to cold damage, and ignore any drawbacks caused by deep underwater environments. Which means, I believe, that they do not suffer from the pressure and cold issues that we talked about. We were fairly tight-fisted about those uh, rules. Like, if you go into the Twilight Zone, your your bones will shatter into a million pieces. Uh, I would open up a little bit to that anyways for the generic races but these guys could go wherever the fuck they want honestly because it is directly stated for tritons but not for sahuigan i would say the sahuigan can't and remember bones break at this level your internal organs burst long before that yeah fair enough um and of course they speak common and primordial i wish they would just call it aquin or at least put it in brackets yeah i mean you see the like storm sorcerer gets the ability to speak Orin, which is a form of primordial. It's what and is it? Like they, Orin, Ignan. Orin, Ignan, Terran, and... No. Yeah, Orin, Ignan, Terran, and Aquin. Yeah. But um, the fuck is Sylvan? It should be up there as well, right? Because well, Sylvan has flopped the, back between the Fey and the Air language, and it's gone back and forth. Like In 5th edition, it's purely it's Fey. It's purely Fey, yeah. But they are like... Depending on who the editor is, they either go... Here's the aqua- here's the elemental language, or here's just primordial, guys. It's just primordial. Yeah. Right? To be completely honest, I'm okay with primordial as an umbrella language that you could communicate to them all with. Um, mostly just because, one, languages in 5e are broken. As in, they are not super good, but as in, that system is destroyed. So... I, because you get so few languages in the game, having one that kind of covers a wide gamut of creatures you could talk to, I'm okay with. If I can be honest, I already think that Primordial exists like English does. Like, you know when you're talking to an Australian or a a Scot Mm -hmm. or a Brit or a Texan or a... Irishman. Yeah, or a Newfoundlander, right? Like, you know when you're talking, they're all speaking the same language, but... For fuck's sakes, Newfie, slow down. <laughs> Not wrong. So, speaking of Brits, let's jump over and talk to Terry for a minute. He's in the Green Dragon Inn in Greyhawk. We don't get a base Triton stat block, but we do, in Theros, get two stat blocks for a very specialized kind 
of Tritons. Okay. He's covering the Triton Shore Stalker. These guys are assassins from the mythic odysseys of Theros that emerge from shallow waters and seek revenge upon anyone who has slighted their communities. They're usually stealthy, reactionary forces of murder. But, but good they... murder. No. No? Bad murder? Bad murder. Okay. But they've been known to preemptively strike if they feel like their territory's been threatened. They're so effective at neutralizing targets with speed and poison that most of their victims are thought to have been swallowed up by the sea, and the surface dwellers often have no idea that a Triton shore stalker was even nearby. Okay, thanks Adam and Dan for passing it over to me. Another good one for me today. I've got the Triton shore stalker, an, an assassin, an assassin creature really, and uh, I'm excited to talk about something that um, I'm, I guess, kind of accustomed to playing, but I haven't, I haven't delved into a whole lot. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to explore this Triton shore stalker. So obviously, an offshoot of a standard Triton will have a particular role to play within their community and uh, is going to have some uh, some of its own abilities that I think you can use in particular ways to help with what you're trying to achieve here. So medium humanoid, Triton, neutral evil, alignment to me is still important. It, it, it's more so important with the enemy, I find, because it, it's, it's a way to determine their likely way of operating. Neutral evil. When I hear neutral evil from Tritons, I think of a creature that does not care about your morality. They don't necessarily have a code or a law of their own, nor are they chaotic in that they're uh, unpredictable like a raging demon. Um, they're going to be likely methodical, likely methodical, but they're going to not necessarily care about your morality, and I think that's a mistake that DMs put out. Uh, and players in, in assuming that the enemy is going to think the same as they do. They don't care what you believe is right and wrong. They only care what their objective is. That's what's important to them. Um, so armor class of 13. Hit points 5d8 plus 10. That averages out at 32. Speed walking 30 feet. Speed swimming 30 feet. Let's have a look at the stats. You might have guessed it for an assassin based character. Dexterity is their highest. They get a plus 3 modifier for that. Um, coming next is their wisdom, then their constitution. Uh, and then we're working our way down with average sort of stats here with strength, intelligence, and charisma. Okay, so really we're leaning into dexterity here. Skills, nature, plus four, perception, plus four, stealth, plus five. Okay, damage resistance is cold. I'm cool with that. Senses of dark vision, 60 feet. That makes sense if you're coming from the depths of the ocean. Passive perception of 14. Languages are common and primordial. Sure, they speak common, so you can communicate with them. They know what you're screaming. Uh, and you can have a conversation if you think it's going to be uh, worth your while. Just remember they don't think like you and they also do not care about your agenda. Uh, they're amphibious, so this Triton can breathe air and water. They have innate spellcasting, the Triton Shore Stalker. The Triton's spellcasting ability is Wisdom, spell save DC of 12, and it can innately cast the following spells requiring no material components once per day each for Fog Cloud and Gust of Wind. Okay, I've talked before about how I like to manipulate the environment uh, in my uh, in my gameplay, particularly in combat. Fog cloud. If you're thinking a Triton shore stalker, yeah, it's going to it's going to stalk the shores. Uh, but also, this is a, this is a creature I'm likely going to be using for some sort of naval assassination. If I'm coming after a captain or a person of power, um, or I'm trying to target a specific target. Um, and, and Fog Cloud is going to play a huge part not only of the exploration pillar here for building up tension, um, you know, if you're thinking of like that, that thriller writing, you know, you're trying to build up 
tension and, and create an unsettling feeling of, of nobody really knows what's coming. They just know something is going to happen. They may even know what is going to happen, but they don't know how it's going to happen. Fog cloud is going to help with that, but also gust of wind. If you're thinking you're going to be on a tight space, such as a ship, the gust of wind spell is phenomenal for putting your enemy exactly where you want them stopping them from moving towards you and even manipulating a large group of people. But I'm thinking an individual character here. If they're starting to get aware, if they're starting to move or I'm concerned that they're going to do that, I'm going to use the Gust of Wind spell to put them exactly where I want them. They have Nimble Escape, that means this Triton can um, take the Disengage or the Hide action as a bonus action on each of its turns. Th look, this is important. You're going to have a Relentless character here, which is in, in a way almost going to be like... Um, like a Terminator that's not a machine in that it has to preserve itself. It can't just keep going. It will care about its own life. But if it's in danger, if it's losing the battle, if it needs to tactically withdraw, tactically withdraw is what we call retreating in the UK, tactically withdraw, um, it'll come back, it'll disengage, it'll go back into its environment, be in the ocean, uh, and then it'll come back and it will attack again. So disengage as a bonus action is a huge advantage for an assassin because you can keep the battle uh, on your terms you can come out of it if it's not working and you can go back in actions multi-attack the triton makes two urchin spine short sword attacks what is an urchin spine short sword i hear you ask i'll tell you it's a short sword made out of urchin spines that gives you a melee weapon attack a plus five to hit to reach five feet and it's 1d6 plus three piercing damage plus 3d6 poison damage this is important. If the creature is reduced to zero hit points, that creature is stable for poison for one hour, even after regaining hit points, and is paralyzed while poisoned in this way. What could we do with a paralyzed, stable character at zero hit points? Now, you play your Triton Shore Stalker however you like, okay? However it floats your boat. But what I'm going to do with a character that does not care about my morality, only cares about its own agenda, is likely seeking some sort of revenge because you've frustrated it in some way and I have paralyzed you zero hit points. You might be stable from the attack, but you will be drowning, sir. I will be dropping you to the ocean and you will spend the next couple of minutes in in combat, either becoming the puzzle in that now the other the rest of the party members have to get you out, DMs, think about this strategy for your NPCs. You know, this could the puzzle could be the paralyzed NPC that is drowning. Um, the puzzle could be that this is thrown into a character that reaches zero hit points, and now everything changes. The objective now changes within the combat, but I'm gonna use this paralysis uh, to drown you. If not in the ocean, I'm gonna make a statement here, and it just needs to be a pail of water. That's all it is, a pail of water, and I'm gonna paralyze this character, and I'm gonna leave them to drown. And because I'm an assassin character, I have likely got onto this vessel of this area without being noticed. This is a character where although, where although the challenge rating is only at 2, it should be striking a lot of fear in your characters um, and your players because of the potential of what it can do and how you play it. You have to look deeper into it. There is a reason for every single part of this character sheet and you have to look at why might this cause paralysis? Why does it keep them stable with zero hit points? Uh, what can I do with this? What can I do with this innate spell casting? This is going to make your game a lot more interesting. Okay, Poison Spine. Uh, they also have a ranged weapon attack with the Poison Spine. Uh, plus 5 to hit. Range is 30-60. 1d4 plus 3 piercing damage. Plus the 3d6 poison damage. Okay, so you have ranged options here. You know, you can play this assassin from ranged if you want to, but I mean, come on. 
I want to feel that fear. I want to put that fear into my players. I want to get up close and personal. I even want a little bit of a cutscene after I paralyze you. You can drop out of initiative. I know you're paralyzed. Uh, I want that cutscene. I want that fear. I want that ticking clock. That ticking clock for those players that they have to fix this puzzle or, uh, or somebody's going to pay the ultimate sacrifice. And look guys, that's it from me. I hope that's inspired you to use the uh, Triton Shore Stalker in some more interesting ways when it comes into your own campaign. I'll be back next time. I'll talk to you again. You can find me on Instagram at VanCityTerry. Best of luck torturing those people. Terry, thank you for encouraging us to torture people. You're a true role model. <laughs> How do you feel about the fact that the Shore Stalker is neutral evil, while other Tritons are typically lawful good? I I like it, but at the same time, I would have preferred them to have been at least lawful evil. Um, my, my justification there is neutral evil is selfish. Why the fuck would they care about... You know, someone having killed their community, a uh, member from their community or some sort of um, slight against them, uh, against their communities. It doesn't track to me in my mind. They're completely willing to kill and use poisons to do it. So evil makes sense, right? But they'll do it because it's their duty. They'll do it because it's their, um, it's what their role in the community is. That's a lawful creature in my mind. I I got the impression, and again, we don't get a lot of lore about these guys. Yeah. I get the impression that these guys are vigilantes. They, this is the Punisher. It's not Batman. Uh, okay, yeah, I, I see. I see what you're saying. I was about to be like Adam. Several times on this podcast, we've talked about whether or not Batman is lawful, neutral, or neutral good. good. Yeah. yeah, but uh, we're not doing that again. We're not doing it again. No, because I know the answer already, Dan. Yeah, he's lawful neutral. Continue. Yeah, uh, he's he's neutral good, but we'll I will continue. So anyway, I think that diverting from this is the beginning steps that we are starting to see in fifth edition before all of the controversy came out last year. This really did give us the idea that your role within the community dictates your alignment, not the not your genetic upbringing, right? Well, not your lineage, yes, yeah, right? no, I'm, I'm with you on that. Um, and it's something that I want to apply to other bits and pieces of of uh, D&D lore, right? And it's something we as players can take to heart as well, because too often you get around a table and they're like, lawful good means this, and you have to work around me because I have my strict code, right? Like, I have run tables, and one of the rules I used to run with before I kind of opened up my grasp on uh, alignment is no evil. I have no interest in dming for anybody evil i don't have so big a problem now but my rule is don't be a dick right don't actively cause drama in the party unless it's kind of agreed upon that that's okay with the party right so a neutral evil person a neutral evil rogue isn't allowed to just steal from the party willy-nilly unless that kind of behavior has been talked about before with the party right look we can go off about alignment at length and we already did it in a previous episode so you can go back and listen to us ramble on about alignment there. And we do it about every four episodes anyway. Yeah. You're not. So let's, let's just let's just move along here. But honestly, I like the fact that they are supporting the idea that when you build your towns of humans and elves and whatnot, yeah. you can have an evil necromancer that lives down the lane that is a human. You and can have a did. you can have a sh uh, shore stalker who is a triton who lives down the canal channel. Sure. Whatever. Right. So. It's it's very much the and same. They're, and they're both completely functioning members of society. Yeah. Yeah. 
Speaking of these completely functional members of society, I have a problem. These guys are 5d8 plus 10 hit points. Yeah. They have two attacks with multi-attack, and they are a d6 plus 3 piercing plus 3d6 poison damage. Yes. At zero hit points, when you're poisoned and paralyzed, the poison has an additional effect where if you hit zero hit points, you're poisoned and paralyzed for an hour, even if you're healed, and there's no save to it. And these guys are a CR2. This is an aquatic creature who's paralyzing. Are these things a player killer? Like, are are these things a PC killer? Like, what the hell happened to the balance to these guys? This is another example of... Bloat? uh, I'm not going to say bloat of um, power creep. Okay. Right? Uh, But honestly, I think that it's designed to be something you fight on land. Yep. We, I mean, we, we saw talked with, about it last week over and over the, again with with the Sahugan. Like they 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 see our tracks when they're out of their element. Once they're in their element, they're way more powerful. And these guys are the same. Yes, you're going to see that with most aquatic creatures. Yeah. So I also want to point out that um, poison spine, the ranged attack, does less piercing damage, and the poison damage doesn't have all of those batshit crazy effects, but it still does three d six poison. Remember. That you can hide as a bonus action with these guys. Even though you can't use multi-attack with a ranged attack, you should be able to seriously injure a tier 1 party before even engaging in melee. Mm -hmm. When you start using multiple creatures of this type, even tier 2 parties are in real trouble. Oh yeah. Be careful with your balance, DMs. Yeah, this is going to get out of control very quickly. You could end up in a death spiral before you even know it. So, what are you going to do? Anyway, let's jump over to Graven Hollow Library in the Underdark, and let's talk to James. He's covering the Triton Master of Waves, who is the only other Triton stat block we get, and he's an elemental mage of the Tritons from Theros. Triton Master of Waves. Although most masters resent land dwellers and attack those who trespass, If one brings offerings or shares their beliefs, one can escape their wrath. You must first survive the winds and waves that mark their arrival, though. Triton, Master of Waves, are a medium humanoid. They have an AC of 15. HP is 14d8 plus 42. They have a walking speed of 30, a swim speed of 30. Their strength is fairly strong. Their dex is average, constitution is also fairly strong, intelligence is average, wisdom is better than that of a human, and their charisma is excellent. Their saves are dexterity plus 3, intelligence plus 3, and charisma of a plus 7. Their skills are athletics of plus 6, nature of plus 6, and survival of plus 4. They are resistant to cold and fire damage. They have dark vision out to 60 feet and a passive perception of 11. They speak common and primordial. These creatures are a CR of 8. Some of the unique abilities they have are amphibious, which allows them to breathe both in air and in water. They have innate spellcasting. So spellcasting is their charisma, a DC of 15 and a plus 7 to hit. A few of their spells they are able to cast with no material components, such as Ray of Frost. Once a day for each of these, Fog Cloud, Gust of Wind, and Wind Wall. 
They're also able to summon water weirds, which you can find in the monster manual. And they can do this after a recharge of a short or long rest. As a bonus action, they can magically summon 1d4 water weirds, which appear within 60 feet in the water around the Triton. They act immediately after the Triton on the same initiative count, and they fight until their death or the death of the Triton. The actions they have is multi-attack. They are able to make two attacks using Wave Touch and one cast of Ray of Frost. Wave Touch is a melee spell attack of a plus seven to hit, five foot reach, it targets one target, and it's 4d10 cold damage. Ray of Frost, a cantrip, range of 60 feet, a plus 7 to hit, targets a single creature for 3d8 cold damage. Targets where speed is reduced by 10 feet until the start of the Triton's next turn. As a reaction, they are able to use Frigid Shield. When a creature the Triton can see targets with an attack, it is able to gain 10 temporary hit points. If that is reduced to zero, all creatures within five feet take 2d8 cold damage. Well, with that, I'll send it back to you, Adam and Dan. So again, we see a departure from the standard alignment of their people. The Master of Waves seems to be deeply connected to weather and the unsympathetic nature of the oceans. So like, I feel that it makes sense. These guys are a little bit more hermit-y. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of these Triton stat blocks veer so far away from lawful good that it made me raise my eyebrow. I wouldn't fault any dungeon master for ignoring this and just leaning on the lawful good side of how tritons are supposed to be or just lean into the true neutral with the um, the general idea that you're neutral nature. something. Yeah, yeah, right? so, yeah fair enough. Uh, of nature for all tritons. Either way works for me, for these guys. It depends how arrogant protector of the sea or force of nature you want to get. I feel like Theros is force of nature. Forgotten Realms is arrogant, arrogant like sea knight, sea. Yeah, o- yeah. ocean cavalier. They're riding seahorses around and shit. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, part and parcel with being like a controller of weather, these guys get that resistance to cold. But what would give them resistance to fire? It's not I like they're know, calling that's... meteors from the sky. No, it's fucking weird. Right? Um, remember that any creature that's fully submerged in water already gets resistance to fire. Because of the amphibious traits, swim speed, and natural length to the depths of the oceans, I can't imagine any of them hanging out in the open air for a prolonged period of time. No. Right? This seems to be a weird detail. Do you think this represents the idea that they're always supposed to be wet and dripping? I mean, no. I'm not resistant to fire. That was a really good look, and I'm very upset that we do this in an audio medium. So, (laughs) again, I'm uncomfortable. Uh, you wait for it, Dan. I'll make you more uncomfortable by the end of the episode. You always do. Yep. We're going to pucker you up so tightly, it's going to take a Q-tip to work that shit Can out. Can I just say that the word pucker is like, it, it's up there with moist. Yeah? Yeah. When you combine the two, you get a moist puckering. Uh, How no. are you feeling now? No, not well. No. Anyway, back to Tritons. <laughs> um, the other spell that they get access to beyond Ray of Frost fog cloud and gust of wind and apparently mind spike fuck (laughs) at wind wall is (laughs) the cone of cold and they get it twice per day i'm still annoyed that we're not dealing with spell slots yeah i don't know i do like however that the basic attack cantrip is listed right in the spell block that's a nice touch I, i i agree with you i have zero problem with the spell slots thing just the once or twice a day limits your customizability with how you want to play it 
Yeah, I mean, if I have access, we, we had problems with the war, uh, with the Warlock of Ukatoa last week when we were talking about how they have more spell casting capability than a Warlock even at level twenty would. Yeah, but remember, your your NPCs and your monsters don't play by player rules. No. So and, and I'm that's why fine I'm okay with, with this, yeah. Yeah, but I'm not okay with this because I want there to be more spell slots simply so that if I want to cast Fog Cloud two or three times instead of casting one of the other things, I can. It just makes more flavor. Um, it, it gives me more opportunity as a dungeon master to have more intense and interesting um, battles from one room to the next. Otherwise, it's always Fog Cloud, then Gust of Wind, then Wall of Water, right? Instead of Wall of Water. Wall of water and then fog cloud to get away. In the next room, it's fog cloud and now gust of wind to clear the area so that they can do this, right? Like, I want there to be more versatility, which is why I like spell slots better. Ah, uh, I mean, yeah, sure. Uh, if I can be honest, these guys aren't lasting six rounds. No, right? and, and so that, it's that's kind of part, a moot point. That's, that's what I was going to say. Like, a lot of the daily uses kind of. No combat is going to last longer than six, seven, eight rounds at the very most. So. They're never going to get this off, which is why, honestly, I think they're overshowered, overshowered, overshadowed. That's the word, which is why, honestly, I think they're overshadowed by their attacks and the summoning of water weirds. Yes. 1d4 CR3 creatures that are invisible in the water right, yep. and get an auto grapple with a bend towards drowning it's you. right in the text. Yep. Suddenly the CR8 creature is hitting way outside of its weight class. And this is another one of those instances where, yeah, you got to fight. These things are designed to fight out of the water with their CR level. But the lore says these guys aren't ever leaving the water. No, this is intense. This is insane. Also, there's this fucking reaction. First of all, the Master Waves gains 10 temporary hit points when it's targeted. Not when it's hit, when it's targeted. If a attack reduces it to... Uh, the temporary hit points to zero, not not the creature, just the temporary hit points. So if it does more than 10 damage, every creature within five feet of the Triton takes 2d8 cold damage. No save, no to hit attack modifier, just bang damage. This thing is a fucking beast. This is one of those things, because it's a reaction, you can make sure your ranger hits, and then everybody steps in to attack, right? You, but it doesn't even need to hit. The ranger says, I'm going to attack that guy. Before he rolls dice, it's when he's targeted. Yeah, yeah. Right? So before he rolls dice, bam, 10. Right? So As a DM, I would play with this where I would just hold it for the attack that has the most people around me at that point. Like the ranger goes, I want to trigger that ability, so I'm going to use it. No, he's not going to. This is a reaction. This is a thing he chooses to do. Man, this is this is how I fuck over rogues. Oh, it, oh. The moment they yes. come in with that sneak attack, right? But the rogues, they're they're worth it. Yeah, but they're also going to take that damage. Mm-hmm. And remember, we're talking CR8. So these guys, I mean, 2d8 is not a whole lot, but it's every round. And it's auto hit. Yeah. That's intense. All right, we've spoken at length now about Tritons, but this is a Hooligan episode, right? Like, that's what we're talking about here. So let's turn the conversation inside out and see what we can learn about Sahuigan from stacking them up against their enemies. Sure. You want to roll for this? Sure, let's do it. I got a 17. I got a natural one. Hey, I think finally, am I, I get using to go your first. die? Okay. I, I don't know. Anyways, so um, what we can learn about Sahugan from balancing them against Tritons is that Sahugan aren't warriors. It's clear that the Tritons are the more militant 
and the more powerful uh, creature. Yeah, I'd agree with comparatively that. Comparatively to Sahugan. The highest CR of a Sahugan is six, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Triton Master of Waves is a CR eight. Yeah. Right? So the Tritons are the heavy hitters in this fight. And you get that. They chase the Sahugan away. Right? Yeah. Also, we can see that the Tritons hold dominion over the depths of the oceans and the remote parts of the seas. And so Sahuigans raid the shore and attack ships, right? It seems like Sahuigan would rather square off against sea elves and surface dwellers where they have at least an equal footing than go up against Tritons. That completely tracks me. Like, Tritons are the force in the deep that is kind of pushing the Sahuigan up. And then they it is there that they meet the sea elves, right? So, like... The Tritons are the older foe. The Sea Elves are the newer foe, right? Um, speaking of Sea Elves, remember last episode when we talked about the Merlanti? Yep. Yeah. This goes to show that the Sahuagin are going to mutate and evolve quickly. Yeah. How often have they been up against Sea Elves? No, I know that Sea Elves are, are populous in the uh, yeah. in the elemental plane of water, right? So they would have been up against them before, but they're really head-to-head and they don't have an evolutionary advantage against Tritons. Yeah, that's weird. I I think it's almost because like uh, elves will probably let them a little bit closer. I don't think Tritons are going to let them live. Like there's no ability to evolve to get close to Triton society and figure yeah. out if a Triton smells you, you're like, and you're, you're a done. Sahuigan, you're done, right? We've also learned then that Sahuigan are a displaced invasive species. Yeah. This leans heavily into the scavenger marauder themes that we see with them. And it also gives credence to the fact that there's not one united kingdom. They operate like territorial barbarian tribes as a result of this. They're refugees. I kind of view them as like schools of fish almost, right? Like they just float around finding a spot in the seafloor to rest for the night before they go and raid for their food the next day, right? Like they seem desperate. Yeah, but desperate doesn't mean stupid. No, it would make a lot of sense for them to stay on the perimeter of a bigger bad guy's territory. Yeah. Right? So, Tritons are their true enemies. We've learned that. But they understand that a nearby Kraken or Leviathan will call the Triton's sense of duty, will call to the Triton's sense of duty faster than the Sahawagan will. So, this will allow them to counterattack if they think they could win or flee if they can't. So, Sahawagan Sahawagan are smart. Yes. Right? And we keep seeing that their intelligence is better than average. Yes. So they're going to lead the Tritons into a fight with a bigger foe, bide their time. And when the Tritons are limping back, that's when the uh, Sahuagin will, will attack. Or they're getting they're getting um, messages from the nearby sharks that, hey, the Tritons are attacking the Kraken. And then the Sahuagin will flank them. Yeah. Like, will cut off the retreat and exterminate the Triton. Mm-hmm. They're not working for the Kraken. But they'll use the uh, the opportunity to wipe out their their enemies, and and they are smart enough to leave the second that the there is no more chance for the Tritons to escape. Right? Yes. Like if if they'll let the Kraken do the cleanup, they're getting out of town. Yeah. Um. You see this with the Tritons having the contempt for cowards. Yeah. Yeah. And Sahuagin will definitely retreat en masse if they feel threatened enough. Right. They did it from the elemental plane of water. These two details are probably interwoven into the struggles of the two species. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, also interwoven with the two species is Sahuagin are lawful? Yes. Um, but it feels more like an organized militia than um, when compared to the Triton uh, rank and file, right? We're going to see more barbarian themes and less focus on the pomp and the circumstance of uh, 
a military society. Um, but Sahawagan will still follow the rules and commands of their superiors and make detailed schemes to help them win any given scenario, right? Compared to each other, even the basic Sahawagan is smarter than a Triton Master of Waves. Well, that, that surprises me. Uh, I, I don't know. It tracks. It tracks me. because uh, It does. But like when I saw that at first, I went, wow, normally a CR8 over a CR half or whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I see what you're saying. But like this, to me, feeds into that. Uh, I know survival is a wisdom-based skill. But it's that survival instinct of the Sahuagan who just... They're crafty. They're crafty. Like Tritons maybe might be smart and they might be clever enough. But Sahawagan are crafty, and they'll get that upper hand if they can. And I don't think they're afraid to retreat. And like Tusken Raiders, they will be back, and in greater numbers. That's what it feels like. They're very much the Tusken Raiders of the sea. All right, so let's uh, let's take a break for half a sec before we jump into actual Sahuagan stat blocks. Sure. Hello, podcast people. Podcast people? We're recording. Yes, but it makes them sound like pod. We're recording. You're recording. Fuck. Hello, podcast people. We've got a couple of things going on that you might not know about, and so we thought we'd cut away to a little reminder. First of all, we just want to point everyone to our YouTube channel again. We appreciate that all of you listen on your respective favorite podcast apps, but the It's a Mimic YouTube page has all of our shows laid out in playlists. That means you can listen to our Dragon episodes back-to-back or dig through the Campaign Builder or touring the Multiverse series without scrolling through the backlog or having to use a search function. New episodes get uploaded within a week of airing on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or whatever, but the whole backlog is up there. Even the episodes we're embarrassed about. Yeah, fuck, those early cold opens were sloppy. Yeah. And delicious. The other thing we want to mention is... What? You, you know what else is sloppy but delicious? Whatever you're going to say next is just going to get cut, so... Well, look. The other thing we want to mention is our sneaky little store that lives an unassuming little life on our website. There are stickers, magnets, phone cases, notebooks... Cups, water bottles, coffee mugs, and travel wait, mugs. Wait, 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 I can have a mug? I'm tired of your ugly mug already, man. I want a mug. Ooh. We even have masks in a variety of sizes because we're socially conscious people. The current designs are for the It's a Mimic mic and the Deep Dark Irradiance logo, but we'll be updating the store as time goes on. How big are the mugs? I don't know. There's a standard one and a tall one. And a travel mug too. Jesus, I need to look at this website more often. So, please take a second to check out what we have to offer. We really appreciate the donations we've received through the website, but we want to make sure that you guys have the option of getting something for your hard-earned money. Every little bit helps keep the lights on and the side projects rolling. And we love you for your support. So thank you to everyone out there who visits www.itsamimic.com and checks out our online store there. <laughs> hey, there's even a little pin with the logo on it. And don't forget to check out the YouTube channel for perusing the older episodes. Now, without any further delay, let's head back to the show. Jesus, three different kinds of stickers, Dan. We are capitalist whores. Will you please take these damn commercials seriously? No. So, first up is Brad. He's in the Yawning Portal, and he's covering the Sahuagin Deep Diver. Thanks, guys. So, those fishermen were back in this week that I was talking to about the sharks the other week. They splashed an awful lot of coin, and the fact that they've had a couple encounters with Sahuagin and lived to tell the tale tells me they're probably not your average fisherman. I don't know if I want to look too deeply into that, though. It could get me in some trouble. Anyways, I was talking to them this week, and they were telling me about a Sahuagin they came across just this past week while out on the open seas. I want to tell you about the Sahuagin Deep Divers. 
So, these things are the rogues of the Sahuagin. These guys are your sneaky boys. They are deep in the depths, going through the dark, and infiltrating, and basically sneaking around deep in the ocean. So, these guys are blessed by uh, Sokola. They've got some divine magic that enables them to basically, they've developed these, think anglerfish. They've got this light that's on a long, uh, what would you call it? A lure, basically, uh, that hangs in front of their head that they can turn on and off at will uh, to help them see in the dark or to use as a lure to attract prey in. So these guys, they clock in at a challenge rating of four. Uh, so nothing small. They have an armor class of 15, which is all natural armor. And they have, on average, 14d8 plus 28 hit points. So an average of 91 hit points. They have a movement speed of 30 feet, but a swim speed of 40 feet. They've got a decent strength, a much better dex, a decent con, better than average int, better than average wisdom, and just slightly below average charisma. These guys have a really decent stat block across the board. They're proficient in constitution and wisdom saving throws, and they are skilled in perception and stealth. They have a dark vision up to 120 feet, and they of course speak Sahuagin. Like all other Sahuagin, they come with the blood frenzy ability. So if you're not at full hit points, watch out because these guys are attacking you with advantage. They have the ability Brine Lurker, so this is related to the fact that they're the sneaky boys of the deep. They have advantage on all dexterity checks, while specifically stealth checks, uh, while being submerged in water. They have limited amphibiousness, so they are able to move about on land and be out of water, but they do need to fully submerge once every four hours to avoid suffocation. So they do need to keep their skin effectively wet in order to breathe outside of water. They have the lure ability, which I kind of touched on earlier. So what this does as an actual ability is they can turn this light on or off at will to lighten or darken a space. If they turn it on, it sheds bright light in 30 foot radius and limited and dim light for an additional 20 feet. So 30 to 50 feet, it's gonna be dim light. Uh, this is worth noting because yes, while they do have dark vision of 120 feet, you have to remember that dark vision is in grayscale, right? You can't see color, you're not going to see quite the same details, so you can see. But if they actually want to be able to inspect something or check it out while they're deep underwater in the darkness, this lure will let them do that. And again, it will act as a lure, so any sort of less intelligent creature or someone who hasn't come across one of these before is going to be drawn into that light or at least be aware of it. Uh, they also, like other Sahuagin, they do have shark telepathy, so they can magically command any sharks within 120 feet using limited telepathy. So basic, simple commands, attack, move, that sort of thing. Uh, as far as attacks go, they have two ways of attacking. So they do come with a multi-attack, and the multi-attack lets them either attack twice with their glaives that they're equipped with, or they can make a single bite attack and two claw attacks. So let's jump in first to the glaive attack, because this is going to be the one you're going to use. This is your heavy hitter. Uh, bite and claws are cool for flavor, but if you're really looking to just put the damage out, two glaive attacks is the way to go. So they have a plus four to hit, and they're going to do 2d10 plus two slashing damage for 13. That said, with the glaive attack, if they both hit, you're going to be taking 26 damage on average in a round, and it can certainly go higher than that. Uh, for the bite attack, so you can make one of these per attack if they don't attack with the glaives, and again, plus four to hit, and they're going to do 1d10 plus two damage, plus they're going to do two claw attacks, which again, plus four to hit, and they're going to do 1d8 plus two slashing damage. So on average, if you manage to hit with all three attacks from the uh, bite and claw combo, you're going to average about 17, or sorry, 19 damage per round, which is less than the glaive. So you're better off going with the multi-attack from the glaive. 
Uh, the last thing they can do is they have the Light of Sakola, and what this allows them to do is it allows them to pulse magical light from their lure. Uh, if you're within 30 feet of them and can see the light, you need to succeed on a DC 11 wisdom saving throw, or else you'll be charmed until the end of its next turn. If you are charmed by this light, it's a little bit different than your average charm. You will be basically incapacitated as you stare at the light. So it's not totally the same as charm, but close enough that it's... It's just flavored, right? You're staring at the light. You're focused on the light, like a moth to a flame. I really like these Sahugan Deep Divers. Uh, I think the light, especially from a roleplay and story perspective, is a really great tool to be using. Uh, especially if your players haven't seen one of these before, right? They see this light in the distance. Someone's going to want to check it out. It's shiny. It's bright. Somebody's going to be drawn to it. At the very least, they're going to want to investigate what it is. And by the time you get within range of this everybody's making wisdom saving throws that said i mean challenge rating of four by the time you're at this level there's still a chance that somebody's gonna fail that dc 11 uh wisdom saving throw just based on dice and you know a lot of people do dump wisdom so there's definitely a possibility for there to be somebody charmed and taken out of the fight by these things and you know you have more than one of these things then you're really gonna be in trouble that said i don't see these hunting too often in packs i mean i wouldn't put it out of reasonable expectation but that said with the stealthy nature the advantage in stealth and everything else you feel like these guys are kind of lurking in the deep solo on some sort of search mission anyways i'd love to hear what you guys have to say about the sahugan deep divers uh so hit me up on instagram at clueless game master or twitter on uh, at clueless game master or if you really want to reach out on the subreddit i'd be happy to chat with you there back to you adam and dan these things freak me out. I don't like them. Of all of them, this is the one that bothered. Well, the hatchling swarm, the gross yeah. thing we came up with last week was really nasty. But these guys are nightmare fuel. The light lure that extends from their foreheads is fucking terrifying. Angler fish are the things of nightmares. And I would definitely flavor the description of these nasty bastards to be a little more reminiscent of these ugly nightmare fish. I fucking hate angler fish. Can I just say, I would in this case, pull the fast one over the party, they would see anglerfish, their little lights bobbing through the water as they go. And I would do it enough that the party just started getting used to the idea that there are anglerfish in the area. And then there's that one that is about the same size as bobbing, but it seems to be coming towards you. And it's growing. It's getting bigger. It's get This is the bigger, the biggest light you've seen on any of these. No, this is a freaking Sawagan deep diver. I, 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 I love messing with the party in this regard. Also to mess with the party is the shark telepathy. We briefly mentioned it last episode, but we're going to talk about it um, a little bit deeper now because it does seem mundane at first glance. But I want to point out that it says the Sahuagin can magically command any shark within 120 feet of it. That's singular. Any shark. Yeah. Right? Not all sharks. If there are multiple sharks, they will need to be commanded one at a time. But it got me thinking. How do you break this down in the action economy? It's not the command spell, right? Yeah, we talked a little bit last last episode about how often you can communicate, mm-hmm. right? Do you have this just be a passive communication between them and sharks? Or are they using bonus actions? Or how do you rule this? I Honestly, it is a bonus action. Sorry, it, it, it is a free action just to communicate, just like it would be for a old one warlock, right? A great old one warlock who just gets that 30-foot telepathy, right? Same thing. But if they want to command, that is going to be an action. Really? You're going to, like like a ranger would? Yeah. Yeah. Like a, an animal handling check well, level of stuff, right? But it automatically... But it automatically or, it, succeeds, it, right? But you still have to do the motions. You still have to go through the work. I 
I would just have it be a passive thing. I really would. Sahuigan are pretty flavorful, and we get a whole lot of different kinds of them, and I want them to just be a little bit scarier. Um, I, I like it being passive, but I I don't know. I could make an argument for it either way. Honestly, with the new Beastmaster rules, they've gotten rid of that takes your action away. Yeah, yeah, yeah fair. Right? So I think they well, noticed that well, that's kind of dumb, but... My only other thing is is from a balance point of view, right? Um, Sahawagan are going to be far more powerful in their elements than they are statted for because they're statted for being outside of their element. Yes. Right? Even though guys like the Deep Diver will never be fought on dry land, but they're still CR'd towards that in my mind. So if you give too much of uh, a good thing to the Sahawagan, it's going to overbalance the party too quick, right? I just think that... Especially it, when they're in their like home environment. I just think that by making it a passive ability, it allows you to keep Sahuagin more relevant in higher tier 2 and low tier 3. I gotta compromise. Just... Do it, bef- like have the uh, command effect happen really before combat even starts. Yeah, look, here's the thing. If shark telepathy acts like a passive ability, then I think it's fair to say that sharks will be part of a more complex tactical game. Yeah. And they'll no. follow more um, more orders and they'll follow them better than a regular shark would. And I don't want to say that they'll have the full intelligence of a Sahuagin, but they definitely be better parts of the strategy. They're foot soldiers now and not just not just beasts, right? Yeah. And I that's why I want to do it, right? Why I would want it to be passive, but I'm not like I like I say I'm not really not married to that. Yeah. I mean, it it feels kind of aquamany as well. Sure. Which which I mean, I'm I'm okay with. We need more of that. The other thing that's really cool is when you stack it up against the tritons and the CLs. Tritons and CLs can kind of communicate with with beasts specifically, the Sahawagan. but Sahawagan command sharks. Yes, right. They don't have any dominion over seahorses or tuna or any of that shit. But did you watch that video that I linked in the description last? The it's a fucking tuna, bro. Did you? Watch? No, I didn't. Oh Jesus, Dan, you're missing out. I'm gonna put it in the show notes for this too. Okay. Before we move on, I do want to point out that while Brad is right about the glaive doing far more damage. Um, on average, the multi-attack action only lets you do two attacks with it. Whereas if you stick with your natural weapons, you get one bite and two claw attacks with the multi-attack. While the glaive still has superior damage output on average, I can see some niche instances when you might want to choose the three attacks over the two. And this is the same thing, barbarian versus monk. Yeah, I mean, frankly, if I reduce you to zero hit points and I get three attacks. Yep, bye. Yeah, you're done, right? Like, there it is. There will be some instances... Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so I want to talk about this Light of Sokola okay. action for a second, okay? I think it's less badass than I want it to be. Okay, explain. I want you to think of the action economy. You burn your action on this, doing no damage. Let's be generous and say that everyone fails the really easy DC-11 wisdom save. Yep. And becomes incapacitated. Then they stand there, slack-jawed and blowing bubbles until the end of the next turn. But every one of those turns will end before you get to act again. Because it's the end of their next turn, not the end of your next turn. Okay. Best case scenario, you waste everyone else's turn in exchange for using your action. It's annoying for barbarians, but also annoying for your allies. Mm -hmm. I can really only see this being useful if you have superior battlefield positioning, or if you're trying to gain an extra round of unpursued movement before you dash next round, or if you are... No, that's it. That's that's what I got. Bait. 
if you are bait, like, yeah, that's what I mean about the superior. Yeah. Like, everybody well, else has a better swim speed, so they'll get in there faster and fight everybody. I mean, it just kind of sucks as a lure, especially considering that you are illuminating yourself in bright light. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I do like it because I do think um, we get that little bit of that flavor that Sahuagin are swarmers. Not just in their base baby form where they literally have a swarm. We are swarmers. Bum, 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 No? God damn it, Adam. <laughs> so anyways, <laughs> because they're swarmers and they're highly into... Fucking, I hate you. Like <laughs> Did I just do right? Yes. yes. Because they're swarmers and they have uh, high intelligence to be able to think tactically about things. I think they're going to, okay, let's just go send Bill, send Bill out first to stun them, and then we will swarm in, right? Yeah, I think that if everybody else is hidden nearby and they're out of view of this thing, sure. Yeah. I also think that one of the things, one of the mechanics we don't have in D&D, and I don't need a mechanic for this, but it is something to think about. Sure, your light casts bright light, like your torch is 20 feet of light, right? And then 20 feet of dim light for what you can see. But you can see it from 10 miles away. Okay. Right? People standing in the dark, the next mountain over, can see that light twinkling, but they can't see what it is. Mm. When you're underwater and there's nothing obscuring your vision except water, then in theory, that should be a factor here too, where you can see these lights hovering in the distance, but you can't make out what it is at this range. I see it being useful then sure. to lure people the long distance and then turn it off when they get like within uh, sight distance. Yeah, no. I don't know what that within sight is. I couldn't tell you. I could Honestly, my glasses, my prescription is so bad that I can't tell. I take them off when we record, A, so I can read my notes, but B, so I don't have to look at you because you are just a, a pale blob to me. You are that with me too, but I have near-perfect vision. You're just rude. You're a rude <laughs> motherfucker. So I'm just going to cut you off and let's jump over to our resident storyteller, Nick, and see what his insights are about the Sahuagin Wave Shaper. The topic today reminds me of an incident that happened last autumn. While perusing a Sword Coast market, I noticed an enthusiastic craft had begun to draw around one of the market stalls. The fishmonger there was a hard-bitten fellow who was selling fish at cheaper than usual prices and seemed to be having a wonderful day, praising Lord Umberley and basking in the attention and praise of his customers. On offer was all manner of sea creatures, many exceptionally hard to catch in quantity even for experienced fishermen. Congert eels, of which only a few would usually be caught. Filefish, again, hard to come across, not usually caught in large numbers, and crabs of all type. The fishmonger truly seemed blessed. When I inquired as to the providence of his bounty, he could hardly contain himself. It turned out his brother had been fishing off the coast of Neverwinter when he was caught in a storm. He was certain he would sink, but fortunately, a swell deposited his skiff on a shallow sandbar. All night long, his brother remained there, praying to his goddess until the storm passed. When the sun finally came up, he was surrounded by fish, all of which were scooped up by the tide and deposited on the sandbar. Among them was the battered yet still breathing body of some twisted and horrifying half-man, half-fish creature. The monger went on to explain that the creature had begged for its life, speaking in a stilted yet terrified voice, until his brother drew his gut hook and ended its life. He seemed quite proud of his brother's accomplishment. A few of the gathered crowd, myself included, looked at one another with skepticism, until the monger silenced all doubt as he plucked from a wicker basket the creature's decomposing head. 
He seemed unaware of the smell or the cloud of flies that buzzed around its face. The creature's mouth was open in a scream, its eyes a milky white, and its skin a bruised purple. Observe, cried the fishmonger. Even in death, the beasts of the sea obey its royal summons. All around the market stall, the monger's dead catch began to twitch and squirm as if animated by some foul force. With a sickening lurch, the crabs began to crawl off the piles of fish and eels they were heaped upon. The eels slithered and the fish swam towards his boots. The crowd looked on in horror, yet the fishmonger never loosened his grip on the gut hook. The creatures began to gather at his feet before slinking off in all directions. The fishmonger's eyes followed his catch as they squirmed around inside his stall. Watching him now, it seemed his face was gaunt, his eyes hollow. He looked almost as if he hadn't slept in days. He smiled his big, rotten grin, but it wasn't a smile that came from happiness. It was the smile of a man going mad. Lord Umberley be praised, he said before spitting on the ground. The fishmonger then, without another word, hobbled back into his stall. My stomach churning, I made for the open air. That was the last time I saw the man alive. The next morning he was found dead inside his stall, with all of his remaining fish flayed and sliced open. Of his brother, he was found adrift in the very skiff he piloted the night he found the sea creature. He was dead, his body sliced open and stuffed full of coins of silver and gold. The crew that found him dumped him overboard and burned his boat, not daring to take a single penny of the accursed catch. That creature had been a Sahagan wave shaper, a lawful evil humanoid of the Sahagan subtype. These creatures typically act as support and battlefield control, and travel in the company of other Sahagan. They are low AC, only 14, and low hit points, only 11 D8 plus 11, make them exceptionally frail for a CR5 creature, meaning they won't pose much of a challenge in a solo encounter. On land, the Sahagan wave shaper moves as fast as a man, with a base speed of 30 feet, but are slightly more maneuverable in the water, with a base swim speed of 40 feet. Their base stats are average across the board, in the 10 to 12 range, except their wisdom, which is slightly better than average, and their intellect, which is quite exceptional. Intellect also being their good saving throw. The Wave Shaper is a scholarly type, having proficiency in arcana, as well as intimidation and perception. Like all Sahagan, the Wave Shaper has 120 foot dark vision, and communicates only in its native tongue. However, the Wave Shaper has a unique innate spellcasting ability, which allows it to, once per day, comprehend languages. It can also cast message at will. Chances are, if the Sahagan need to send an envoy or diplomat, it will be a Wave Shaper. The Wave Shaper has other abilities endemic to other Sahagan. Blood Frenzy, which gives advantage to attacks against creatures that have already been wounded. Limited Amphibiousness, which allows it to breathe air instead of water for a limited amount of time. And Shark Telepathy giving it command over sharks within 120 feet. The Wave Shaper has a selection of melee abilities it can use with its multi-attack, although given its poor staying power, a Wave Shaper in melee combat is probably in a great deal of trouble. The Wave Shaper can make two attacks around, once with its bite and once with its claws. Both attacks have virtually identical statistics, with a plus 4 to hit. The only distinguishing factor is the bite does 2d8 plus 1 piercing damage plus 3d8 cold damage, whereas the claws do 2d8 plus 1 slashing damage, plus 3d8 cold damage. Lastly, the Sahagan Wave Shaper's signature ability, and its namesake, is its whirlpool. The Sahagan must target a fairly deep and fairly wide body of water. In it, they create a vortex that lasts for one minute, or until the Wave Shaper is incapacitated. Creatures within range are pulled towards the vortex at 10 feet around, unless they succeed at a DC-14 strength-based athletics check to swim away. 
When a creature enters the vortex or starts its turn there, they must succeed at a strength saving throw, DC 14. Should they fail, they'll take 2d8 bludgeoning damage and be caught in the vortex until it abates. A successful save will result in half damage and prevent them from being caught. A creature inside the vortex can continue to make strength checks to swim away, but they take disadvantage when doing so. Every round a creature remains inside the vortex, they'll continue to take the 2d8 bludgeoning damage. This ability makes the wave shaper fearsome in its native habitat, but on land, this Sahagan is scarcely a threat. GM should be judicious when employing this creature. Its frailty and highly specialized abilities means that unless the encounter is specifically designed around this creature, it'll probably not be much of a challenge for the party. One potentially interesting application of the Wave Shaper might be in cases where the party is traveling by boat or ship. The Whirlpool stat block mentions that it affects creatures and objects alike, and while creatures have the option to swim away from the Whirlpool, no such provision is made for objects, like boats. In Ghosts of Saltmarsh, a rowboat's stated HP is only 50, and with the Wave Shaper's Whirlpool dealing 2d8 damage per round, you would have no problem reducing it even an unblemished boat to splinters. Well, that's all I've got to say about this topic, guys. Thanks for having me on again, and I'll pass it back to you in the studio. So let's begin by talking about spells. I think it's interesting that the that the Wave Shaper gets message at will and comprehend languages once a day, as this is the only opportunity to communicate with Sehoagan besides the Priestess and High Priestess's abilities to cast tongues. The communication barrier continues to be an interesting opportunity for Dungeon Masters to create attention and a sense of alien otherworldliness. Remember, message is telepathic, but it doesn't cross language barriers. Right. So it's going to be weird to, yeah. to, to deal with this. And I think it's fun. The Wave Shaper only only getting these two spells seems freaking weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's... Why does it need message and comprehend languages when its whole deal is... I make whirlpools. The creepiness of it, I would assume, like we, we with the deep diver, we have this, you know, floating orb in the middle of the deep. I right? just don't like it. That, that like You're right. But that is the meta answer. In world, I just don't, I don't see it. Except, are whirlpools loud? Yes. Are they? Yes. Like rushing water, right? Yes. So that's why, like, is that where this... I, Maybe, yeah. I, I to guess. talk to the other Sahuagin and, and like, well, wave shapers are kind of, they're like, commanding officers as well a little bit as well they're they're battlefield control so they're going to like do this and then direct the main body of the force right they also have that weird arcana boost as well like that yeah which makes me feel like they're they're wizards they're water wizards yeah uh water sorcerers sure almost yeah you know it's interesting as a one-off set piece kind of encounter right and nick nick is right it's far too specialized to be regularly useful. Yeah, I'm with you. Um, it's interesting for sure and would have a lot of potential for role-playing if the language barrier wasn't so formidable, <laughs> right? And this is the thing that we keep running into. I like the high intelligence. It's got incredibly high intelligence. I like that it's all communication-based stuff, but we're still kneecapped here. Yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think... Why do you think that they bother to give us the spell save DC and attack modifier for spell attacks when they don't actually have any spells that these rely on? Is there an implication or an expectation that there will be an expanded spell lists or magic items at play here? I don't know, man. Like from a design perspective, I think they do it just because every spellcaster needs to be assigned a spellcasting level and therefore here are the stats. Sure. 
And sure, every once in a while I'm going to have an NPC uh, and he will be the big evil master of sh- wave shaper of like whatever it's it is. It's so easy to come, back, uh, come up with a DC or a caster level for, for a enemy. That, I don't like, know. I, I legitimately don't know why they do this. I feel like it is just because they do it on all the other spellcasters. One of the things that uh, we saw in Candlekeep, which is an episode that hasn't been released yet, keep waiting, um, is that... They are changing a stat block and how it works in very subtle ways. It's not that subtle, man. It beats me over the face and I dislike it. I, we get I, into I, it in that. In we that, get into it in yeah. that when that gets released. Legend lore. Listen to it. Um, but when we... I, I, I honestly think that this is them starting to test the idea of what do we need to put in a... Uh, in a monster in stat a block? In a monster stat block. What, what can we remove? Uh, look, honestly, I think they should all be standardized. One of the things that I really liked about previous editions is that it would have things like um, walking speed is this, swim speed, blank, climb speed, blank, fly speed, blank, yeah. because I don't have it. So that every stat block has the same amount of things in it, and you know what you're looking at. You're not sitting there going, wait a minute, does it have another kind of speed? If if it's a spellcaster, just say 7th level spellcaster. Add the proficiency in it. Mm-hmm. Add the whatever it is, and just... I'm a big fan of standardization. Because then a DM will learn how to read it and it will be second nature. I know in 3.5 where to look to pick up each one of these pieces. In 5th edition, it's a little bit harder. Yeah. Right? The fact that they've broken up some of the traits that could be actions and some of the actions that could be traits. We, we've talked about this uh, a lot where their desire to leave room for DMs to be creative with the stat block has uh, hampered in a way where now there is information falling into the ambiguity right and and it's really really troubling where we look at what they say and we could you know figure out what they're not saying by saying that thing yeah and and honestly you can tell that we're doing this with our lore as well just by trying to talk about sahu again but we got to line it up against all the other sea creatures yeah right like it's just a one-for-one conversion at this point so anyway while we were reaching out to everyone, uh, like a little behind the scenes thing here for a minute, um, we wanted to find out, you know, what everybody knew about Sahuigan and whatnot. It was clear that Dave was particularly excited about the Wave Shaper as well, and he wouldn't shut the fuck up about them in our call. So we just asked him to forego his unique breakdown and see what ideas he could bring to the table for this monster, even though Nick was already covering it. Sure. It's always interesting to see what different Dungeon Masters focus on with the same monsters. So here's Dave from Eberron. Now, these guys are described as being kind of hunched over and twisted Sahuagin that sacrificed their bodies to the mutating magic of Sokola. Uh, they use elemental magic to, to bolster the forces of the Sahuagin, and they love to create these destructive whirlpools, which can really mess up your day. Uh, if they cast this, like, say your party's ship sinks, and, you know, oh, yeah, we're fine, we've got potions of water breathing. Yeah, then you get them all close together herd them up, and then unleash one of these, uh, they won't be too happy with you at this point. Uh, the ongoing bludgeoning damage, uh, as well as uh, the, the the other people, maybe it's just regular Sahuigans, uh, throwing spears at them while they're in the vortex, like you can really catch them off guard, and now they're going to be using their actions to not necessarily attack, but try to get away. So you can really neutralize a party with this quite easily uh, and you should be careful because that's not necessarily what you want to do if you get uh, uh like they are cr5 so say you get a fourth or fifth level party uh, if they don't do this right and you know you're not careful you could get them all and kill them all which i mean 
I'm going to say that I don't think is a good idea, but I mean, we all know I, I really kind of love it. Anyways, uh, these guys are not to be trifled with. They do, I think, need a little bit of support. Uh, I wouldn't just throw one or two of these guys at a party. I would I would add these into the mob, you know, uh, but not just, you know, one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, but anyways, uh, I am going to continue my search here for the Draconic Prophecy, so I'm going to send it back to Adam and Dan. You guys can always find me on the subreddit r slash it's a mimic and i will catch you guys next time so dave brings up another great point about these guys they're walking tpk if you aren't careful both he and nick said that this creature is a little too fragile to act as a solo monster but the sheer battlefield control like you said earlier dan yeah. and destructive nature makes them glass cannons all of the power none of the durability in a solo match you're either going to kill the party in a few rounds or get neutralized in two you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a look at this ability as an inspiration for an aquatic trap. That's oh, like how that. I'm going to get over this. If you take the hit points out of the equation, this becomes a lot scarier and a lot more of a intriguing encounter, engaging encounter for your party. I like that. I like that a yeah. lot. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of underwater traps out there. So and there fun. needs to be, right? Yeah. Like, I, man, we all played Zelda. We all saw what a water temple can be put fun unique traps in and if you can't for the life of you think of new intriguing traps go play zelda again it does traps well speaking of someone who was well versed in in navigating traps and whatnot let's go over to castle ravenloft right where megan is there and she's covering the high priestess for us which it turns out according to my notes is not just a priestess who packs her bong with the dankest seaweed god damn it adam color me disappointed all right, hey guys, it's Megan here from Castle Ravenloft, as per usual. It's been raining a lot here recently, and um, that's kind of helped it stay extra quiet for some reason. But anywho's all, uh, I'm here to kind of talk to you guys a little bit about the Suhuigan High Priestess, um, which honestly doesn't have a lot of text written about them as a whole. I mean, the only thing that I really know is that they're kind of like the most devout and ferocious of the worshippers. So they're armed kind of like, like, I guess the easiest way to physically determine which one of these is a high priestess is that they're usually armed with a staff that is studded with like jagged shark's teeth, um, which is a really, really cool image of just this strong being with this giant staff with sharp ass shark teeth in it. Um, probably sounds like it hurts. Um, and they have a tendency to be, of course, the ones that lead the dark rituals, that kind of thing. So... Um, obviously, I'm probably just going to jump right into it. Stat block, so we can kind of chat a little bit about the abilities and capabilities. I feel like there's a little bit more information in there than what I have elsewhere. So, these guys, well, these folks, uh, they tend to be, of course, medium-sized humanoids um, and are lawful evil. So, um, kind of similar to, I don't know if you guys had listened to my little bit about the warlock last week, but um, they definitely have that kind of same feel but a little bit different. And I'll get into that when I get into the stat block. So the armor class is 14. They do have the natural armor, similar to any of the other uh, water folk. They do have a really, really good hit point pool of 11d8 plus 22, of course, average of about 71. So a little bit of a higher pool of um, health. And of course, if you look at its challenge rating of five, that kind of checks out. They do have a speed of 30 and then a swim speed of 40. So again, love the fact that they are faster at swimming than walking. It just makes a heck of a lot of sense. So this is when it gets interesting when we're talking about magical characters, especially on the evil side. So 
Um, for their stat block, they have a strength of plus two, a dex of plus one, a constitution of plus two, intelligence of plus one, wisdom of plus three, and then charisma of plus zero. So anyone last week who listened to me speak about um, the warlocks, they of course were a charisma-based magic user, whereas these are a wisdom-based magic user, which I find very, very interesting in making that shift, especially because I feel like they tend to worship similar similar gods. So it's a very interesting shift in my mind. Um, so of course, that being said, with wisdom being their um, spell casting capability, their saving throws are wisdom plus six. Skills, they have insight of plus six and a perception of plus six. So just very, very aware of surroundings. And of course, with those wisdom and perception stats being boosted, you can't pull the wool over these guys' eyes for sure. Uh, so for senses, they have dark vision of 120 feet and passive perception of 16. And of course, as a language, they can speak Zuhuigan. So I'm very interested in a campaign to see how many of your players would ever take Zuhuigan as a, a language. Um, I feel like it would be super rare, but heck of a lot of fun. But you darn well know you're going to have that guy at the table being like, I'm pretty sure I would have learned or known this language from somewhere in my lifetime. And you'll have to come up with a reason as to why someone knows Zuhuigan language, which I think is hilarious. So some of their abilities are very similar to just other Suhuigans, obviously. So they do have the blood frenzy. Essentially, the concept is, of course, blood is dripping. They frenzy. They want to kill it. Good stuff. Kind of like a shark in my mind, obviously. We've probably spoken about that a few times. They do have the limited amphibiousness, so they can breathe air and water, but they can't spend more than four hours outside of water. Otherwise, they will suffocate. And then they do have the shark telepathy, obviously. Again, I just really, really, really want to see a shark battle with that as being controlled by a high priestess or a warlock of some kind. Just really want it. And then, of course, because they are a priestess, they do have the spellcasting capability. Their spellcasting ability is Wisdom, uh, with a spell save of DC 14 uh, and a plus 6 to hit with spell attacks. And then she does have some of the following cleric spells prepared. So for cantrips, so that they can do it at will is Guidance, Mending, Resistance, Thaumaturgy, all those kind of things. Thaumaturgy, I really, really enjoy the idea of using a little bit more. I don't think people use it enough, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. And then of course, for spells, they do have um, a couple of different levels of spells because they are at seventh level. So at first level spells, they have four slots. For second level spells, they have three slots. And then for third level spells, they have three slots. And then for fourth level spell, they have one slot. They have quite a barrage of spells they can use. So when I read these spells, you are going to say, absolutely, it screams cleric. So bless, detect magic, guiding bolt, old person, spiritual weapon, which would be a trident specifically. Uh, bestow curse, fear, mass healing, uh, healing word, tongues, and banishment. So I know I recently just spoke about how it would be interesting if one of your players would know the Suhuigan language. Um, I love the fact that, of course, a cleric would be able to cast tongues so it could understand you uh, and be able to actually have maybe some kind of a communicative conversation with you. So I think that's a smart move. And then, of course, just some basic actions because it is a humanoid. It does have a multi-attack, so the High Priestess makes two attacks with either its toothsome staff, which is the staff that's covered in shark teeth, or one attack with a bite or one with claws. So the Toothsome Staff, it seems pretty basic for the fact that it is a very, very dominant part of the physical look of a High Priestess. It basically acts like a regular bludgeoning, piercing damage like staff. So it is a plus five to hit uh, with a 2d8 plus two piercing damage. So it is, a, I, I feel like it sucks that you probably would not get 
close enough to this creature for it to be able to use its staff in my mind. And I feel like I would love to give it a little bit more flavor or a little bit of something else that it can do if she ever has to use it in my mind. Because, I mean, as a cleric or as any warlock or any kind of magical creature, you do tend to stay far away from the battlement. And you do your best not to be in battle hand-to-hand with some kind of a fighter because you will get murdered in the face. Um, So I just... I would be interested to hear you guys' thoughts on what you might do to the Toothsome staff to make it a little bit more... um, fearsome like you don't want to be hit by this thing so you don't want to get close to it right anyways love to hear your thoughts because the other attacks of course are your basic bite and your claw so plus five to hit and then one d4 plus two piercing or slashing damage so very basic and very simple so i think that being a high priestess you would be relying a hell of a lot on your spells and you aren't going to want to get close to someone so again what are your thoughts on what you would use that staff and how would you build it up to make it something a little bit more than what it is i think it's just lacking that little special something But yeah, I'm going to throw it back to you guys. Uh, Tell me about it. And of course, to the audience, you can feel free to follow me on Instagram at 0mega0. Any questions, thoughts, things, emotions, feel free to DM me. But yeah, have yourselves a great evening, and I will talk to you guys later. Bye. So you remember how the priestess didn't have a weapon? Yeah. It bothered me. I like that these guys have a staff. I like that they have a weapon. I also like that it's called Toothsome. Toothsome is a fun word. It is. Would you use this as a spellcasting focus? Oh, 100%. Yeah, me too. 100%. Yeah. Um, but then again, I'm also recently been diving into the lore again of artificers and what they can use as spell uh, We don't have time to listen to you wax poetic about artificers. I'm not waxing poetic. I, I the, the class bothers my brain. So um, we really get the impression that anything could be a spell focus if you really set your mind to it. Anything? Anything, Adam. But we're not talking about your staff. We're talking about the high priestess's staff. Right. Okay. So let's move away from that implication and talk about what Megan implied, which uh, when she was discussing the spellcasting abilities, she talked a little bit about which spellcasting ability is used when. I just want to be clear about this. Last episode's Warlock of Ukatoa was a charisma caster because it follows the warlock mentality. That tracks makes sense. Priests and priestesses almost always lean on the cleric spell list. Sometimes you get a little paladin in there. Yeah. But for the most part, it's cleric. Um, and therefore, they're wisdom casters when they're cleric. When they get the paladin, they're charisma casters, right? Sure. You can follow that train of thought. This is why I don't use the names of the monsters at my table when I drop the mini down or I reveal that there's a creature. Experienced players like you <laughs> will hear the little hints like this and adapt the play style to counter specific archetypes, right? Oh, this is a priest of? It's a healer. Take it out first. I guess, yeah. Yeah, that's right. that that makes sense. Man, I'm finding out fucking every week that I was a really shitty player for a while there. It's not that you are a shitty player. It's that you are already able to look behind. You are naturally looking behind the curtain. You yeah, know I, what's going I, on. I know what's behind the curtain because it gets shown to me once a week when we record. Help. Uh, we're not help talking me. about my staff. Help me. Anyways, um, I want to say that Megan's right. I mean, I called her out earlier, so I'm... You're backpedaling now? Oh, well, no, I'm just... I'm garnering more brownie points because I'm going to need to... Um, it won't help you, Dan. Uh, God, I hope they do. Anyways, Thaumaturgy, as Megan said, is underutilized as a spell for enemies. Um, we keep on harping on the lack of communication between Sahawagan and the rest of the party and PCs in general. But a creative DM can fill in a lot of those blanks by using Thaumaturgy correctly. I agree 100%. Right. Just being able to raise your voice or to have a 
loud echo or bang or like there's so much that you can do with yeah. this. So and I mean this tracks for if you get uh, a monster with prestidigitation or illusion magics or or minor illusion magic or uh, freaking druid craft. There are more ways to communicate than verbally. Yes. Right? But let's talk about the other spells for a second. Sure. Once again, in a monster stat block, we have bestow curse but not remove curse. We see this a lot. It drives me nuts. I'm okay with it. I'm still okay with it. I just... It's not like they're accidentally bestowing curse on somebody. No, but how often in pop culture, outside of D&D, do you have... You have to return to the shaman... Or shaman, damn. It, or you have to go back to the witch doctor or find the weird woman in the woods to undo the curse she put on you. Uh, I mean, you're you're not wrong, but at the same time, there's also the go to a not necessarily the but a you know woman in the woods or or high priestess or high priest. Or, I just or, think it's more fun to have to go track these guys down to remove it. I I mean, yeah, which is why, like we said last time we talked about this. Having a part of them be part of the remove curse is just as good in my mind. So, like, get their heart from their chest. Oh, uh, yeah, you just give them um, different spell components to a different person to remove the curse. Sure, yeah. Okay. Right? That require the person who bestowed the curse. Okay. So, we see tongues and mass healing word again. Okay. Yeah, these are present, like the priestess. Um, but the high priestess also gets banishment, which is fun. Yep. Uh, I assume that they're sending people to the demiplane off of the elemental plane of water, right? I mean, I, I know it's supposed to be a harmless demiplane as per the spell description, but can you imagine suddenly appearing on a tiny tropical island? Like your barbarian is raging underwater and then all of a sudden just standing on an island. There's li- this <laughs> little like stereotypical, like from a from a one panel comic. Yeah. Like the little single palm tree on the 10 square feet of sand. With like a little sandpiper on the ground that he has to kick to maintain his rage. Yeah, just punching the tree away. Yeah. Yeah. I I I don't know. I think that it's uh I think it's pretty funny to do that. Mm-hmm. Um I would not make them appear underwater because that is in its and of itself harmful. Honestly, uh I would go the inverse and put them in a I don't know, underwater temple. Or something to an ancient evil god. Give the players something horrifying to look at for a little bit. I just don't want them to drown. Oh yeah, no, I'm I'm with you. But just because a temple's underwater doesn't mean it has to be, you know. Yeah, it's not full of air somehow. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, air pockets exist. We all watched um, Godzilla versus Kong. I I still haven't seen it. Oh god, Dan. With what time? Fuck, fuck the science in that movie. Just, <laughs> just fuck. I do want to talk about one more spell here real quick. I think it goes without saying that a standard go-to maneuver for any creature that has access to it is to cast spiritual weapon on round one of initiative. Yeah. Before working through any other spells or actions or traits or whatever, get that spiritual weapon out. Between this and shark telepathy, I think Megan's right. I don't see the high priestess getting into the thick of things too much. No, she's going to get the melee attacks without ever being in melee. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. Uh, and Adam, I do got a question. What does the, her spiritual weapon look like? It's a trident. You think it's a trident? Yeah. Because spiritual weapon could literally be anything. We have seen in, in uh, Critical Role how it's appeared as bugs before. Well, I mean, and, she's and, she's got the toothsome staff. Make it that. Right? I, I was thinking a bunch of tiny, like, sharks or just a big shark, right? That... 
Oh, uh, like, like, like a shark that? jaw, like the skeletal shark. Just, just the jaw. shark jaw. Yeah, yeah right? I like that. I mean, that's a bit too comedic. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, right. But at the same time, having an underwater fight and then suddenly you're having to deal with a giant yellow glowing Pac-Man. I'm on board. Okay, so this is where we got our wires crossed earlier when we indulged Dave's excitement about TPKs. Yeah, and we apologize. We will never indulge him again. We promise. Because fuck that guy. So, <laughs> before we get into the big boss of the Sahuigan army, there's one other member of the mob to cover. And I'm just going to go through it quickly, as there's not a whole lot that stands out about this guy, except that he fills a very obvious hole in the army's needs. The martial expert and veteran. Sure. Sure. We had the Sahuigan champion last episode, but they're like cultural idols and icons, but they're nothing compared to this guy, who is the Sahuigan blade master. It says in our little paragraph that these guys serve as officers in the Sahuagin army. Sure. They are veterans, which is why they are a CR6. Again, medium humanoid, lawful evil, blah, blah, blah. AC-20. This is the big standout. It's from the plate armor and shield. Yeah, okay. I got a problem. Yeah? Swimming in plate armor. Not an issue in 5th edition. Why not? Like, it, the armor gives you a disadvantage on stealth. Yep. We know that. Yep. So they're taking into ef- uh, into effect the fact that it's heavy and clinging. Look, man, I want you. I want you to have disadvantage swimming if you carry a shield. At let the alone, very least. let alone plate armor. Now, as we said before, we were doing the aquatic adventures episode a couple episodes back. There's a lot of stuff that if you have a swim speed, then good enough. You can attack with these kind of weapons. You can swim, and I'm willing to kind of bypass all that. By the time that you're a Sahuigan veteran, this blade master. You are able to move and whatnot with... You've trained with this. You know what you're doing. Yeah. You're not level 8 paladin over there that's been adventuring for three months and just got on a boat yesterday. Yeah. Right? Like, there is going to be... I, I think as well, they're using shells and coral and stuff for armor. Um, They're going to know how to maneuver around with it, right? So, um, let's go through the rest of it really, really quickly. Sure. There's nothing that really sticks out here. Um, Their hit points are 15 to 8 plus 30. Of course, their walking speed is 30 feet and their swim speed is 40 feet. That's been the way it has been with all of the others. Yeah, yeah. Um, their strength is the highest with the plus three because, of course, it is. Their lowest is wisdom. Yep. Which is still just a zero, right? And it's 11, so it's even above average still. Um, their saving throws are strength plus six and con plus five. Their skills are athletics plus six and intimidation plus four. They get the same dark vision, passive perception that you would expect. Languages are so who again? Surprise. No. Nope. Um, and uh, then Blood Frenzy, Limited, Amphibiousness, and Shark Telepathy, like everything else. Yeah. Their multi-attack makes three attacks with the Wave Cutter Blade, or one attack with its bite and two with its claws. This is the only time we see consistent three melee attacks in a multi-attack for a Sahuigan, but it doesn't, like, rock my fucking world. I thought that the Wave Cutter Blade would be really, really cool, but no, it's a plus six to hit. And it does 2d8 plus 3 slashing damage. It's like a bigger greatsword. Yep, pretty much. But, I mean, it's one-handed because they wield shield. Oh, I mean, okay, that then that's impressive to me, right? Like, that's a badass longsword. I imagine this thing, like, covered in coral and mollusks. Shark and teeth. Shark teeth, yeah. Sure. Their bite does the 1d10 plus 3 and their claws do 1d8 plus 3 and they're still both. Plus can, six to hit. Can right, you so. split up the attacks in any way? Like, can you do two hits with the uh, the no no? Sword they're pretty they're pretty specific. You do the sword or your natural weapons. Okay. So 
I like these well enough. These are going to be your bodyguards for the next creature, which is the Baron, right? The, yeah. Um, but, I, or, you know, even a bodyguard to help with a priestess, right? Does that make sense to you? That makes perfect sense. I was going to say that they would be bodyguards for the priestess almost every time. Um, and these are the highest CR that we get for Sahu again. Although the least impressive. I don't know. That sword's a big hit and they get a swing of three times. And the AC is high. Like, they're doing the damage. You're, you're, they're going to stand and bang. Your action economy is going to wipe them out, though. A sure, level six yeah. party is going to take out one, maybe even two of these guys. Yeah, yeah. Depending on how strategic your your players are. But again, you put them underwater when everybody else has to use pokey weapons, right? And they're moving at half speed. And these guys become a real, a real, real issue. Yeah. I also think that these guys are going to be battlefield commanders. If there's not a champion there, or even if they are, they're going to follow this general more than anything else, right? These are going to be the people, short of a spiritual leader or a baron, that are going to run the marauding forces. Do you have any final thoughts about these guys? No, man. I, I it's straightforward. It's isn't very it? it's just straightforward. Melee. They're, they're, they're the, they're the fighter of the group. So attacks, attacks, attacks. Yeah. Now let's, uh, let's go over to the Sahugan Baron and covering the big boss here. We have a special guest star. Ooh. One of our good friends and the silent presence on a lot of our episodes is Travis who is our brilliant and benevolent editor. Hi everyone out there, this is Travis reporting from the Salt Marsh off the Azure Sea, where I'm currently landlocked and waiting for repairs. My party and I started originally sailing the Azure Sea in search of, you know, the usual, trade, treasure, and discovering the truth behind really any old sea legend we could find. Not even two days into our voyage, we were caught in a storm. Like one of those really big, life-altering storms. And had to put to the nearest shore for repairs. Seriously, we might as well have been going backwards, we were going so slow. Anyway, when our vessel finally limped its way to this village, everything seemed fine. We could found some tools, we found some supplies. We were able to pretty much fix a lot of the stuff that were gaping holes in the vessel that weren't supposed to be there. But later that night, boy, was that different. That's when all the ruckus really started. This creature I've never seen before showed up out of nowhere, literally nowhere, and really made quite a mess. Seriously, I just cleaned the main deck. And you know how long it takes to get adventurous blood. I mean, villain's blood. Yep, out of the wood grain. Uh, well, the answer is it takes a long time. But seriously, um, Dan, Adam, I'm sure you guys might have some good ideas or tips. Uh, how about cleaning that perfectly normal villain blood? Anyway, I digress. I only found out later that the preacher we fought was a Baron Sahuigan. Oh, and he brought some sharp-toothed friends. And no, none of them were named Adam. <laughs> but seriously, did I hate those sharks. I can't even look into the water without wondering what's looking back at me now. Ugh. This Baron Sahuigan had four arms and was actually pretty large. Like, not where did I put my brown pants large, but like, I should really reevaluate my life choices large. He was actually pretty hardy too now that I think about it. Especially since he seemed to be wearing a breastplate, which would definitely have made his AC about 16. His hit points too were also quite substantial. They must have been at least three times the regular Shahuigan. Or at least that's what I'm told. That's roughly 90, 10 plus 27. So nothing to sneeze at. These guys are also way faster in water than they are on land, so watch out. That's 30 feet of movement on land and 50 in water. They can stay on land for up to four hours with their limited amphibiousness. So if you can, transition to a ship battle or a land battle, and you will probably fare a lot better. 
These guys only come with positive modifiers. The highest being a plus four in strength, a pair of plus threes in con and charisma, a pair of plus twos in dexterity and intelligence, and finally a single plus one in wisdom. So they're reasonably balanced with a strong emphasis in strength. They also only have four saving throw stats, a plus five in dex and intelligence, a plus six in con, and their lowest save is a plus four in wisdom, which really kind of makes sense as wisdom is their lowest stat. This all goes to show that they are a lot more resilient than the regular Suhuigan, which doesn't even have a saving throw stat. The Suhuigan Baron has 120 feet of dark vision, a plus seven to active perception, and a 17 passive perception. So they're definitely gonna be able to see and hear you before you even know they're there. Especially since most PCs only have 60 feet of dark vision, except for the pitiful human. So I just hope for you guys' sake that your ranger or rogue in your party is feeling kind this week. Either that, or your best bet is to attempt to chat with these guys. But you're more likely to get a trident to the face than anything resembling words. Especially if you're a sea elf. They hate them the most. Besides, Suhuigans really only understand one language, Suhuigan, and maybe brutality. With a challenge rating of 5, they don't initially seem to be too difficult for a party of maybe 4 to 5 level 5 PCs, but they are rarely going to be ever seen alone, as all Suhuigan share a special bond with sharks and can train or call wild sharks from up to 120 feet to their aid. If you have a Shuigan Baron and a couple types of sharks show up, you might think you've got this one in the bag, but you'd be wrong, and you're in for a world of hurt. You're definitely going to be breaking a sweat over this one. Another thing that sets these guys apart from the regular Sahuigan is the fact that they have four arms instead of two. So if you had any ideas of arm wrestling these guys, I'd say it's completely out of the question. During each of their turns, they actually have three attacks. One bite, and then two claw or trident attacks. All three of these attacks are a plus seven to hit, and each have a 2d6 plus four damage roll. Except for the bite, which is the least, at a 2d4 plus four melee damage. Another really interesting thing is that the fact that this trident attack is the same damage in melee as it is in range. So under the right circumstances, it can be really effectively used to route or corner PCs or unsuspecting creatures. This trident can also be used with two of the Baron's four hands to do a 2d8 plus four melee damage. The strongest of these abilities is gonna be any of the melee attacks the Baron makes, as he has advantage on the melee attacks against any creature that has less than full hit points. I see these guys using sharks first to chump up the waters with the occasional trident throws, then coming into the kill with blood frenzy induced melee attacks. This could be really dangerous for any party that stays still for too long, or isn't taking healing spells or potions seriously. Anyway, I think that's all the time I've got. I gotta start my shift pumping all the bilge water out. See you guys at the guild hall soon. So I have some thoughts. Okay, look. To answer your question, Travis, about getting bloodstains out of clothes and fabrics, there are a number of techniques. First, though, um, you want to use cold water, never warm water, on bloodstains. There are all sorts of laundry products that are going to help you, but assuming you don't have access to those, or you don't want the chemicals on your fabrics, you can use salt or saline to help in an emergency. Even table salt and cold water will work to some degree. Hydrogen peroxide, lemon juice, baking soda, and even ground up aspirin, which is basically a simple and mild blood thinner, can help. I prefer to use meat tenderizer powder that you can buy on shelves in some grocery stores, mostly because it helps break down even old blood stains at a chemical level but also, no one looks at you funny if you add a pork roast to the conveyor belt beside your splatter scrubber. What is going on? If you're in a real pinch, though, you can use spit. I don't recommend um. using your own, as that just leaves DNA at the scene of the incident, which is why you should always have an accomplice. For materials that can't be put through the laundry, like that use mattress in your basement or the rug that's big enough to roll a body into, 
You can mix one cup of standard dish soap with two cups of cold water and apply it to the area. It's not going to help so much on lighter colors, which is why I tend to err on the side of caution and use darker fabrics in my splatter zones. We're going to end up on a list. Now, you want to blot or soak if possible, never scrub, and treat with these chemicals before putting them through the cold water setting on your washing machine. And remember to treat the stain as quickly as possible. Not only will this increase your chances of casting doubt in a juror's mind, but it will also get you to your nearest alibi post-haste. And if you have the luxury of time, remember that multiple cleanings are often beneficial and a good coat of paint or sealer will help with grout or wood, like on your ship's deck or around the industrial slaughterhouse you set up in the spare bathroom. Um. If you're more concerned with the health and DNA implications, a potent ammonia spray applied liberally to the area won't remove the stain, but it will mask any biological specifics. You've been watching and too much Boondock Saints. if you really want to cover your ass, though, it might be best to just cut out the planks of the ship's deck or the carpet lining of the trunk, whatever, and replace them. And remember that fire doesn't always remove all evidence, but caustic acids do. Or you could just cast Prestidigitation. Yeah, I'd probably go with Prestidigitation. Fucking anyway. What? What? Okay, so I like that the Sahawagan Baron is large-sized, Adam. Oh, right. Um, they're clearly meant to be up in the right. front lines. I mean, I mentioned last week that these guys could ride giant sharks, which is what we were talking about last week and this week. Right. And I love that so much. What just happened, what? we will never speak of again. Right. This is a crazy and intimidating presence on a battlefield, even if it's just a CR-5. A four-armed Sahawagan on a giant shark is amazing. Yes. Also, Travis is right that these guys will have minions around them. At all times. Their multi-attack is good. Their swim speed is excellent at 50. And their saving throws are decent. But the most important thing about these creatures is their intelligence. They're smart enough to know not just when to engage in combat, but also who to target and how. Yeah, coming in with the, with that extra little bit of intelligence, being able to outthink the people that are that are trying to persecute you is, is definitely beneficial. Yeah, yeah. Um... So why do you think, or rather, how do you think the bearing came about its extra arms and large size? Is this more evidence of the evolutionary boon that we see Sahawagan gain in these episodes about Sahawagan, right. Adam? Look, I'm focused again. It's fine. My boner is going down. Oh, God. You know what? I've got a really, I got a really interesting thought about this. I think that... Uh, th- is it in any way, shape, or form related to ammonia? No. Okay. But I'm going to talk about semen for a minute. Oh, fuck. So, when it comes to these sea devils, is that is that better? Sure, yes. When it, you know what brackish water is? Never mind. I'm going to keep <laughs> moving on. Anyway, when it comes to these uh, Sahuigan barons, I wonder if they are the same thing as the hatchling swarms. You know, where there's the one or two that um, will survive out of this entire swarm that's cannibalizing on itself. Mm-hmm. Do you think that any time that they start to see someone else grow that extra set of arms... They take them out. Or do you, like, is this... The... I think they're immediately venerated, not taken out. Oh, you think that they get a, a promotion? Yeah. I think that all... I like this. We don't have an age range for Sahuigan, and lifespans in the water are crazy. There is a specific kind of jellyfish that does not age and is immortal. Huh. Its cells do not age, and it can literally live forever. And I like the idea 
that if you do not deal with the Baron in 15,000 years, they will become huge size with even more arms. Huh. And we are going to get these underwater gods that started off as Sahuigan hatchlings. Cool. I like that. That that's that's my headcanon on it. That there's nothing in fifth edition about that ship, but that's how I would run it. Just these guys are six hundred years old and everybody else is still fifty. They're covered in like scars and scrapes. They're loaded to they bear got, with like magic barnacles armor. on their yeah. backs and shit, right? They like just this. slept for twenty years. Just exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This no, is your Cthuloid kind of level of horror. Yeah, cool. Um I'm I'm really glad we recovered from whatever the fuck just happened. Travis and I have a lot of conversations that you don't know about, Dan. Well, I, and I you specifically respect us. Um, I specifically want Daniel. to respect only Travis, only Travis, because uh, Travis is one of my good buddies from church. He and I go way back. Um, if you noticed a significant boost in the quality of the podcast about a year or so, a year and a half or so. Oh ago, yeah, that was him coming. That in. was Travis going, "Hey guys, you're you're, you're being idiots." figure it out now we did get help way back when from the crit storm guys um and and they helped us get to a certain level travis came in and physically helped us with a lot of the setup we have how we have the room set up how we record and the editing process he's he's an he's an editing genius he's an editing he's an editing genius i i have nothing but good things to say about travis he's one of the most patient reliable guys that i've ever met um and just is in enthusi- pretty much fucking has to be with this podcast right and he's enthusiastically uh involved and passionate he's one of those guys you could talk to and you know he's dialing in even if you even if he has no idea what you're talking about oh he's an active listener he's, he's an active listener he's right? there with you in the moment um he came to me and said hey dan uh i, I played bass at church uh when churches were open um he, he came to me but like you were wearing this sh- like Dungeons and Dragons shirt two weeks ago and I wanted to talk to you about it but you took off immediately after because you had a kid um which is true um last time I was at church my child was a baby and that's just hitting me now now he's four and loud anyways Dan we're doing a podcast we're doing a podcast wow Adam what you bring him into the world and they'll take him out no I don't mean your kids I just mean the general populace again I'm uncomfortable yay it happened you said it would hey hey anyways I can also see the future Daniel um Travis went on to tell me about his love for D&D, his love for nerd shit, and him and I, um, straight up, we would have editing meetings for the podcast that nothing would get accomplished because we just shot the shit and we're friends for three hours. So um, I, I I love Travis. Shout out to Travis. I'm hoping we could get his voice on the podcast more coming up, but um, he is an invaluable boon behind the mic as well. So thank you, Travis. Thank you, Travis. I also want to remind everyone else that you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and r slash It's a Mimic on Reddit. If you have questions or comments for Travis or any of the others, you can reach out to us on these platforms as well. You can also get to us at info at It's a Mimic.com because we love hearing from you guys. So send us your questions and, uh, and your comments. We absolutely love having these conversations with you. And I'm consistently updating the mailbags. You guys will see on the social media that I'm not often asking for more additional questions anymore because... We're getting a lot of them. Yeah, there's quite the backlog. So keep bringing it in and and we look forward to hearing from you guys. So we're at the end of another mob episode, Dan. So let's grab our dice and we're going to roll initiative here. I would like to know how you see the mob breakdown with all of the creatures from last week and all of the creatures from this week 
kind of building that society of what a Sahuagin, um, I guess, refugee camp looks like. Sure. Got a 13. I got a 10. Wow, I'm not doing well today. So, honestly, I don't think Sahuagin have camp. You think they're nomadic? I think they're nomadic. And I think they're nomadic in much the same way sharks are nomadic, right? A shark doesn't lay down for sleep. It doesn't nestle onto the bottom of the uh, sea. I mean, some sharks do. But like a great white just kind of floats floats for a while and then wakes up and is back to it. And that is what I would do. This idea of having a swarm of Sahuagin um, is just a school of monstrous humanoids who travel through the ocean, getting pushed back from Triton and Kraken and Leviathan and sea elves. And they just move from spot to spot to spot, consuming what they can. Well, I would agree with you, except for the fact that we know that they're hyper-territorial. And hyper-intelligent. Yeah, and hyper-intelligent. And on top of that, we also know that they have thrones, because we see it in their artwork. Oh, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah. So there's got to be some sandcastle beneath the waves, right, that they freaking live in, whatever it is. But it may just be, like, this is our entire coral reef, and yeah. this is where the baron sits and waits until there's a reason to come out. I- like, the, the priestess has to have somewhere to pray. It's probably somewhere that's very much like just a colony of ants, to be honest. Like, from outward perspective, it probably doesn't look like a city or a town or something that is infested. But there are tons of little tunnels, tons of little things that will pour out Sahawagan if you enter their territory. And somewhere deep in the heart of that is going to be your baron sitting there. Do you think that they have the numerical supremacy over Tritons and Seals? 110% yes. I agree. I just feel like... One Triton can kill one Sahuagin, but they never go one-to-one. No, no. And um, we see that Triton have a lot more advanced tactical boons with them. Sea Elves have uh, this closer connection to the surface world that they can then, you know, use and draw from to fight the Sahuagin. Sahuagin are, are kind of stuck in the middle between them. and they're, I really see them in the shallows. It says in the lore... That they're from the ocean depths. Yeah. But at 40 foot swim speed, I mean, you're swimming for days mm-hmm. to get to the shore. I just don't see it. I, they feel like, not lagoon, but right where right where the... The, the dip is. Where the, uh, the, what's the word, ocean shelf okay. is, right? Like, they are just down there. It's going to take you an hour to get to their territory, but they're only an hour from your territory. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. That, that, that tracks me. Okay, so how do you feel about the um, priestess versus the warlock Ukatoa? Do they get along? Um, Where does this warlock... And I know that the warlock is from uh, Wildmount, so it's yeah. technically not in the Forgotten Realms, but it's also part of the canon. So if we max them, or if we mash them together, I, I how do they interact? I, is, it, is it one religion? I think it's one religion. Yeah. Um, I, I know that uh, the Sawagan worship their god of... Um, their 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 shark god Sakola Sakola. Um, but there is nothing to say that a cult of Sahawagan worshippers of Ukatoa wouldn't be permitted within, especially if the Baron allows it. Right. Um, I'd say that uh, the priestess and her duties are the formal religion, the formal uh, font of worship in a Sahawagan society, but uh. Ukatoa are going to be those like, yeah, we understand we understand that you got Sokola, but Ukatoa helps out with these things too. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Like, 
Ukito is welcome um, and could very well be the main uh, religion in a uh, unique example, but I don't think that they necessarily butt heads, right? All right. I had a thought. Sure. Do these guys farm, like raise sharks? Considering they're shark worshippers and they've got telepathy with the sharks. I don't think they farm as much as they collect. Sure. Okay. Maybe farm's not the right word, but I yeah. mean, do they like they're not breeding sharks? You don't think so? No. No, I don't think they're. I don't think they're like invested in shark livestockery and animal husbandry with sharks. Um, but I, I do think that if they come up, they come across a shark, they're going to pull it to their side and have it as a ally in times of combat. Right. I think that's true for reef sharks and hunter sharks. Shell sharks are pretty unique and specific. I could see them having a bunch. And giant sharks, I mean, if you want to have your baron riding the mount, he's going to have his pet. Oh, they I might I, breed giant sharks. I, I I think the baron just has several giant sharks, and that one's the closest jump on that one. They don't have saddles. No, of course not. But right? yeah, they grab the fin and go for a ride, right? Like it's it's title of your sex tape. Gross, uncomfortable. Four times. Four, four times. Yeah. We're going to go for an even dozen. Oh, great. All right. So um, the last thing that I want to point out is because of the intelligence, because of the lore, because of the fact that they're one of the weaker aquatic creatures at the base level that's out there, these guys retreat. I can see them fighting to the death really only when there's a champion or a blade master. Or a baron. A, a baron or a high priestess, a warlock of a katoa. Like you need one of these to push them forward. Your average Sahuigan... And even your low-level Coral Smashers and what will retreat to fight another day. Yeah. And I really do see that as being one of their main um, tactics. And even if they have a Baron or a Champion or whatnot there, they're just willing to fight longer. The moment that they see that the tide of battle, pardon the pun, has shifted, they're out. And the Baron will know to get out too. Do you see them laying a whole lot of underwater traps? I mean, they're cunning, so yes, I do. But I'm not necessarily talking about like in and among the undersea caves and shit. No, no. This is like you have a wave shaper hiding behind a uh, chunk of coral. Yeah. And all of a sudden your party's swimming through a whirlpool. Or now you're in giant shark territory. Yeah. Right. Like they're using their their forces, their numbers to their advantage. Um, And my last question is, who do you think runs it after the Baron dies? The priestess. The high priestess? Yeah. Maybe the um, blade master. Yeah, but like it, it's one of the three of them. Yeah, I don't see a champion or a warlock of Ukatoa or even. A, I, I could see a champion taking over in the short term until yes. uh, until someone else comes along and absorbs their their army, their school. Yeah. I mean, and that's the other thing to, to think about with the Tritons versus the Sea Elves as well. The Sea Elves have a community. The Tritons are military outposts. Yeah. Right. And while they're still having children and whatnot, it's an army base. It is not the suburbs. Sea elves are living in the suburbs. Of course, the Sahuigan are going to attack the suburbs and not the army base. <laughs> right. That makes a lot of sense when yeah. you start to think about it like that. But um, the Sahuigan don't really have a family unit. They're not so much worried about the daily. They're there. I mean, to eat. They must just go through fucking schools of fish. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of them. You think they eat algae and barnacles and all that shit? I think too? they like, eat what they can get. I, these guys are the ultimate aqua, uh, aquatic survivors in my mind. Uh, so you said last episode that they're like the creatures from the Aquaman. Yeah. Like the deep creatures. that, And in a lot of ways they are. But those things, I sat down and watched it again. 
they're so bestial. Yes. Yeah. That I think that from a flavor standpoint, from a swarming standpoint, yes. Like from a physicality standpoint, mm-hmm. they're, we're very much in the same realm. But I don't see it from a tactics standpoint where these guys are just crawling in an, up an antenna for no fucking reason. Right. Or, you know, as Aquaman and, and what's her mirror. Yeah. I get distracted by the terrible actor that plays her. Um, but as, as they're sitting there diving and all of the Sahuagin or these, these deep sea creatures are swarming around. Oh, there they are. Let's get closer. No, you jump off the ship into the water. You're already in the mouth of a shark. Mm-hmm. You're landing on spears and tridents, right? You're not, you're, you hit and then the whirlpool shows up. Yeah. Right. There is no ability to just swim away from Sahuagin. Stay on the ship. If you get into the water, you're fudged. I'm with you on that one, yeah. Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Nope, I'm good. Okay, so, guys, that's all that we could find in 5th edition on Sahuagin, their allies and their enemies, but we got lots of other kinds of mobs to cover. Don't forget to come back next week when we take a look at three more types of undersupported mobs and what they may have to offer your aquatic campaigns. That's it for this episode of the It's a Mimic podcast. If you'd like to support us, you can head over to www.itsamimic.com and check out our wonderful donate button that exists there. <laughs> you will feel so good by clicking this button. You will understand that I am not just selling my soul, but I'm doing it for pennies at a donation button. We will actually call you out by name if you do it too. Will we? I guess we will. Yes, we will call you <laughs> up by name. Listen, motherfucker, thank you for sending us money. <laughs> Please, if you if you don't want to support my murder habits, apparently that got dark for a minute there. I felt like Terry. When when it, it, <laughs> if you don't it didn't have enough uh, chains and whips in the in the tirade to be Terry. <laughs> um then you can just the same amount of biting though. <laughs> God damn. So if you don't want to throw uh, your hard-earned cash our way, we totally understand. Please just tell your friends to pass it on by word of mouth. Yep. Go out into these uh, online communities and spread the word. We really do appreciate it. We rely on the word of mouth because we're broke motherfuckers that can't afford marketing. Um, so we're available on iTunes, Spotify, and YouTube, as well as most podcast apps. And remember, guys, to stay safe out there. Thank you for listening to another It's a Mimic production. Inquiries, shoutouts, requests, and mailbag questions can be sent to info at itsamimic.com. So a question for you guys. With Frigid's shield, it particularly states it can only do damage to the creatures around it. So would running through the Triton with a large warboat, even with Frigid's shield... Make sure no damage occurs on the ship. Okay, so this question is about the mechanics regarding the reaction that the Triton Master Waves has. Okay? Sure. So yeah. let's quote it directly so we know what we're talking about. Because it was like an hour and a half ago in this episode. Yeah. When a creature the Triton can see targets the Triton with an attack, the Triton gains 10 temporary hit points. If the attack hits and reduces the temporary hit points to zero, each creature within 5 feet of the Triton takes 2d8 cold damage. No saves, no attack modifier, just hits, right? Okay. So I think what James wants to know is if you ran the Triton with the ship, will the ship take the cold damage? Now, I had to look up the ship rules in Ghost of Saltmarsh again, and I'll tell you right now that ships are vehicles, not creatures. Therefore, rules is written, the ship doesn't get affected. Arguably, unless it's a living ship, which Ghost of Saltmarsh has info on as well, but that's a different argument. 
but I got to thinking about a complication. A lot of ships have a damage threshold, like we spoke about in our episode on aquatic adventures, and that means that the hulls of most ships don't take damage unless a certain amount of damage is done in a single hit. For example, if the damage threshold is 20, an attack that would normally do 18 damage does 0, but an attack that does 22 damage surpasses the 20 and affects the ship for all 22. Okay. There aren't a whole lot of rules about damage thresholds in 5th edition, but I want to ask you, assuming that a creature has a damage threshold, which no creature does, but assuming that it does, because even the living ship does not get a creature subtype given to it, it's still just a vehicle. Okay. All right, but assuming that it became a creature, then if you were to take the ability that auto hits without targeting, if the damage is rolled less than the damage threshold, how do you rule it as a DM? Does the ship take, does this ship creature take the damage or does the damage threshold still? Damage threshold still applies is the way I would do it. I have other problems with the wording of the ability. Um, this is not one of the things that crosses my mind as as a particular issue um, because... Yeah, you blast out 2d8 cold damage, but it's a boat. It's not going to, like, it's just not going to affect it, right? Well. Uh, but the damage threshold, it functions a lot like uh, damage reduction, DR, uh, function in previous editions, right? Except that you take all 22 instead of just Which the... was weird to me, right? Yeah, so, I had to, I did a double take. In previous editions, that wasn't the case. No, you minus the DR from the total. Yeah. Right? Um. So I like the idea of damage thresholds. I would like to see maybe some creatures or some automatons get some of these. And yeah, right? constructs and shit. Yeah, right. should have some of this stuff. But um, I have other questions like if the Triton activates this ability as their reaction, they get the 10 hit points. Yeah. If the attack misses, what happens? Nothing. They get the 10 temporary hit points and they keep it. Yeah. And but the moment that they hit zero hit points, this thing kicks in. Except no. The way that it's uh, written, if the attack that they trigger it with hits and reduces it to zero, this cold uh, expels. If they're targeted, they activate the ability, that attack mix misses, and then the barbarian blows them up on the next turn. Then You're right, it is that one attack. It has to be that one attack. So this just got a lot less deadly, right? So you're going to save this then for when you get your sneak attack coming in. You're going to save this for when you're running away and need that 10 hit points to guarantee uh, uh, escape. Yeah. Also, this, this ability is more about the temporary hit points now to me than it is about the Nova. Yeah, the, the splash effect. That the hits splash everything. effect, yeah. yeah. Honestly, I uh, I would have this auto hit and do damage if it's a creature with DR, with the damage threshold or damage reduction, however you want to look at it, right? Even if it's below the damage reduction or the damage threshold. It total. auto hits. It doesn't need to, like, this is not an attack. The creature takes damage. Think about it like this. If it was psychic or force damage, it would just do the damage. <sighs> My only problem is damage threshold isn't an AC you're trying to hit. Damage threshold is a uh, is basically a, this is how much damage you need to do to... Get past the get past the, the outer natural layer. hardiness yeah. of the arm of of like skin to, or to, carapace or uh, well, whatever. It's, it's this is how much you have to get through to be able to inflict um, structural damage. Sure, right. So if you do eight fire damage, that's still not going to pass that damage threshold. That's not going to you do eight force damage. All right, well then you still just do eight force damage against the thing. Look, if I can be honest. I, I was as I was looking into this, I saw that they were adding this damage threshold in Ghost of Salt Marsh to things like gates 
yep. as well, right? So we are seeing this on structures specifically. We are dangerously close to that 3.5 thing where there's a hardness level yeah. to swords and when do they sunder and break and shit like that. I am content to not have damage thresholds at all. It makes sense for ships and gates and doors you want to break down and fine. Yeah. Fine. You're going to get into weird, strange scenarios for this. I don't like it. I'm glad that it's not on a creature and I think that we're going to jump the shark. Pardon the pun. Oh. We're going to jump the shark as 5th edition when we start to look at this. Because there are a lot of, um, not a lot, but there are definitely some auto damage things out there. And remember, this damage hits, or this damage does not hit. It just happens. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing in my head as exhaustion or a withering or aging. If you're rolled on the, the wild magic table or whatnot, it just happens. Which is why I say, yeah, it would affect a creature. It just happens. You're not hitting because there's no save. There's no modifier involved. But the fact that you and I can both make decent arguments on this yeah. is why it should not be a part of these mechanics. And even if they do end up with a codified version of this... It'll be in 6th edition. It's not going to be in this. Or, or it'll be so deep in it that we are dealing with bloat and power creep and other shit. Which we're well. already starting to hit with Tashes coming through and, and stuff like that. This brief interlude brought to you by not knowing all of the fucking spells. Open your mouth more. Well, yeah, that's... <laughs> I'm going to regret saying this, but Adam, open your mouth more. Secola. 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 Sahuigan. Sucker hooligan. Sucker hooligan. Sahuigan. Okay, I think I got it. Thank you for listening to an It's a Mimic production. <laughs> okay, you're done. Get it. <laughs>